Hi, this is Matt Wagner, creator of Grendel and Mage at this year's New York City Comic Con, and you're listening to 11 O'Clock Comics. <laughs> Incredible. I missed you, man. I know. I'm back. I know. I'm like the herpes. Herpes. Who's back? Back again. Vincent's back. Tell a friend. (laughs) Well, since since there's only one other person who could qualify. Well, no, I shouldn't say that. Two or three other people that can qualify for that designation. Most of them are in the room. (laughs) Dude, I can't believe you won the grand prize. Were you just going nuts? Yeah, and I don't do stuff like that. My arms were up. I was woo flailing. It's like, yeah. Well, I don't win anything. Very rarely. Do it. Crazy. Was it just like a was it a fifty fifty or everybody was entered? How did that work? No, it was a. Uh, their T-shirts had a QR code on the back of them. Okay. You got a, you got a uh, an Under Armour backpack filled with swag. One of the items was a T-shirt with a QR code on it. You scan the QR code and you were entered into the drawing. You had to be present to win. Three suckers before me were not there no way yes and i was number four i was like ah oh. and they, they're reading my name and they said vince uh we're not even going to try this but by the as soon as they said vince my arm was up i was like yeah <laughs> huh. that's yep. litty yep and how was the trip overall Did you have a great time oh it was great yeah a lot of, a lot of good food a lot of, gr- lot of great beer um the 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 show was okay it wasn't what either of us expected it was more focused on um the business aspect of mm-hmm. uh photography whereas we focused on the uh, the hands-on artistic uh aspect sure. of it, but whatever and uh we're going to focus a lot on the hands-on artistic aspect cuz this is 11 o'clock comics episode 748 and I am Vince B. You are Vince B. I am David A. Price. Indeed you are. And I, of course, am John Harkness. Wow. Nice tie-in. <laughs> you are not a pseudonym. You're Jason Wood, everybody. It's the whole point, though. I know. I know. But you're not. You're Jason Wood. Mm, true. Yes. And uh, we are all gathered here today because this is a very special episode. We have an interview. <laughs> With uh, one of the stalwarts, the the uh, the old guard and the new guard of of comics, uh, you'll find out soon. But in the meantime, I want to tell you where you can get your books, get them fast, get them delivered right to your door mm-hmm. for a mere fraction of what everybody else is paying. Say Hosanna, Madonna, Donna, because the specials are up, and they are many. I have selected three. The first one is probably obvious. From Dark Horse, written by Mr. Jeff Lemire, and drawn by the same. Uh, it is a book called Maze Book, and it is a five-issue limited series. Uh, here's the pitch. From New York Times bestselling and Eisner Award-winning Black Hammer creator Jeff Lemire comes this ambitious and haunting comic series about family, mourning, and reality. A lonely building inspector, still grieving the loss of his puzzle-loving daughter, receives a mysterious phone call one night from a girl claiming it's his daughter and that she's trapped in the middle of a labyrinth. 
convinced that this child is contacting him from beyond this world, he uses an unfinished maze from one of her journals and a map of the city to trace an intricate path through a different plane of reality on an intense and melancholy adventure to bring his daughter back home. The only way out is in. That's a neat pitch. I'm intrigued. Uh, but it is Jeff Lemire, so you know you're going to get the stuff. The cover price on this is $5.99. Your price is half that, $2.99. Uh, I thought it was a very good month for singles. But then again, that's where my mind resides these days. Uh, this is from Behemoth. This is called Nobody's Child. It's a six-issue miniseries, of which this is the first, written by Massimo Rossi with art by Ramiro Barallo. It is uh, said to be an unspecified time in the future. It is discovered that within a special breed of albino rhinoceros, there is genetic code that holds the properties to regenerate man that can cure all diseases, even those very serious. As a result, in a short period of time, this albino rhino becomes nearly extinct, leaving just one, Sabium. Enter Bakari, a, a boy dealing with his own devastation, who now decides to dedicate his life to protecting this rhino. That sounds really cool. So I have ordered this and slapped it on my pull list. Six issues, can't go wrong. Cover price is $3.99. Your price, 45% off, is $2.19. Last but certainly la not least, sporting and amazing cover by Adam Hughes. There are many. Uh, the Adam Hughes cover is the best, of course. This is called, from Dynamite, Vampiverse. It is written by Tom Snegoski and Janine Akison with art by Danielle Main. It is uh, from the writers of Vengeance of Vampirella and the Vampirella Valentine's Day Special 2021 comes a mind splitting event a different vampirella for every thread for every kind of story across the fabric of time and space a vampirella of every conceivable notion born to protect her particular reality it's so universal applied to vampirella uh, but now something someone is killing them and stealing away their precious life energies and growing in power it's up to the vampirella of one of these universes to gather some of her special sisters to stop this growing threat and keep it from destroying the creator of all things the artist and preventing the unraveling of all reality this solicit was disturbingly long i tripped Sorry, I trimmed it down to like one paragraph. They went into Snegoski and what kind of ice cream he likes and where he went for vacation. It was like stupid long, but uh, trimmed it down because I think it's 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 uh it's worth it because Sonia Versal was great, and I love Red Sonia, but I have a very very special place in my heart for Vampirella. So I ran with it. Vampiverse number one. I don't know if it's a miniseries. Or uh, an ongoing, who really cares? Three ninety nine cover price. You can has it for a dollar ninety nine. DCBService.com does not mind late orders or order editions, and you get your book shipped right to your very front door. And you'll be grateful for it because it's super easy. DCBService.com. 
Love it. Got to yeah. do my video here ASAP. Same. Yep. Yeah. I got the big two catalogs done. I just got to go through the... Uh, the ah, game. crap. Did y'all see that? I mean, it didn't affect me this month, but I hope in the future months it will. Uh, DC Connect is now paper. Yeah. Yep. Nice. I forgot to ask our guest something. Damn it. Oh, for a bumper? No, I wanted to ask him about his work for Claypool Comics. Oh, oh I had a whole yes. litany of things we didn't cover. I just, you know, I didn't want to... Damn it. Because save it for an episode two. Yeah, he did on. Phantom of Fear City, which was great. And uh, currently reprinted by Comic Mix. And I wanted to make sure, number one, that he's getting paid. And number two, I just wanted to know, you know, again, what was the uh, atmosphere like at Claypool? Uh, not a lot of titles out of that... Uh, publishing company, but the ones that they did produce were amazing. So we didn't even get into his uh, his video game. I mean, he spent nah. tons of years yeah. on video games too. You got to follow up with him. Let's get him on mm-hmm. again. Yeah. Well, we, we we'll have Steve Englehart month every every nice month. nice. All right, uh, I'm drinking uh, cherry limeade. That's it. Okay. Um, I. Well, I'm really not drinking anything at this point because uh, we've already done the episode. But I was drinking Cafefe uh, and then uh, Aha Orange Grapefruit Sparkling Water. Nice. Uh, I am um, enjoying what I had last week, the um, the Clyde Mays Straight Bourbon Whiskey uh, with a splash of um, seltzer. That's pretty much done since talked for a while and um we've been on for a while and uh i got some some delicious cold water to follow it we're so old (laughs) but we're not busted no seriously the amount of beer i had on vacation was ridiculous you know some it's vacation that's what it's for yep 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 obviously the fast was uh thrown right into the toilet but i'm back You're and back. now I'm overdoing it, so instead of doing 16, I'm doing 20. Oof. Yeah, just to get back on the bus. But, um, there you go. All right, not to belabor the point, we're going to uh, truncate this this pre and post stuff and give you the, the, the sizzle, the steak. Uh, here is one of the better interviews we've ever conducted. I think it's one for the books, and uh, it is with the aforementioned Steve Engelhart, who's going to talk about a lot of stuff, pay attention, well-spoken, super intelligent man. Uh, he's been in the trenches for a lot of years, and um, you're going to learn something. Yeah, so, that's what you say. Yeah, yeah. Lean back, enjoy, and we'll see you at the tail end. All right. Well, as promised, we told you all uh, last week that we were going to have an extra special guest to sit in the fourth chair this week. And, um, I, I mean, look, this, this gentleman needs no introduction. I could just say welcome, and you all would know pretty much everything you need to know about him, but he certainly deserves a lengthier introduction than that. Uh, he is someone that we have talked about quite a lot over these decade-plus years we've been doing the show. Uh, one of my personal favorite writers of all time, and someone that had seminal runs on just about every Marvel and a bunch of DC comics you can imagine, but probably most notably Captain America, Avengers, Doctor Strange, Fantastic Four, West Coast Avengers, Silver Surfer, uh, you all heard us talk about him a lot two weeks ago in the book of the month when we spent the entire episode breaking down the uh, first set of issues of the Defenders from the Omnibus. 
And uh, he then went over to DC and had, although it was a, only eight issues, I, I think still to this day is considered one of the seminal Batman runs ever. He also did some also work in Green Lantern, Green Lantern Corps. By now, you've probably guessed it. It is with great pleasure that we welcome to the show tonight, at long last, Mr. Steve Englehart. Welcome aboard, Steve. Thank you. Hi, guys. Hello. Well, again, thanks so much for coming aboard. Um, you know, as I said, we, we just a few weeks ago, because Marvel put out the uh, the Defenders omnibus. I don't know if you've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So we had a blast uh, going down that memory lane. But uh, but yeah, it's great to, to actually finally talk to you, because, you know, as I think back on, I mean, we've been reading comics now for, geez, 35 years or so, probably, maybe a little longer. And I... And I think that there's just there's certain creators that just stand out, right? I mean, I've read thousands of comics, but when I think back to your runs, it's it's you for some reason when you were writing a book, it always seems to be something that I, I think back on, and uh, you know, and again, I just think for for your your style just clicked with me, and I guess maybe jumping into that, I remember reading something some years ago that you said where you were talking about um, your relationship with Roy Thomas, and you said you know Roy liked to plot, uh, like to start with plot and add character. And you were kind of the other way. You like to start with character and add plot, right? Yeah. Um, well, yeah. I mean, uh, everybody's different, right? And I mean, t- at the end of the day, you've got to turn out some product that hits both of those things, and and probably several other things along the way. But um, it's just what are you m- most interested in? I guess I was going to say comfortable, but I, but probably interested. I mean, I'm. I am interested in characters. I like writing all the different characters. Um, nobody had a gun to my head to make me write <laughs> so, ma- so many different books. Um, I like getting into all the different characters and, and, and basing stories on the people who are in the stories, right? But, I mean, you still have to have a plot. You, it's not stream of consciousness comics. Um, and And so I guess... The part that came easy was the characters that wasn't I wouldn't say it was hard to do the plot, but it was something that I had to like consciously work out. It wasn't you know, it didn't spring directly from my from my brain and and I guess Roy is the is different. Roy will figure out, you know, a good compelling story and then and then and then figure out what the characters are gonna gonna do. Um so that's just that's just me. That's just sure, what I sure. do. One of the things I'm struck by by the the era that that you came into the business is it just and admittedly we probably romanticize it as as fans of 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 that era of comics and obviously not being there ourselves. But it 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 seems like when I look upon those of you now who are up in the marquee and, and made your 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 name so well known and, and left a legacy, it seems like it was in large part very uh, amorphous and organic. You guys all coming into the business. I mean, comics weren't. Yeah. A huge corporate business then, where people had a game plan and how to get in, and uh, you know, you, you you just were. I mean, I think you were a philosophy major, if I'm not mistaken, and no uh, psych major. Psych. psych. Okay, so okay, so and 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 you you were hanging in New York, and 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 eventually you you ended up coming to work at at Marvel. I think through you were. I know you were Neil Adams' first art assistant, I believe. So like, right. it just it just seems like I, I knew you were a comic fan, but. But uh, but would you agree that 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 you and, and most of your colleagues kind of came into the business almost by happenstance, like it wasn't a grand plan, right? Well, it wasn't a grand plan, um, and I can't really you know speak to any of my colleagues on that. But but in my case, 
I just really liked comics and and I mean I got my degree I went to college I got my degree in psych by the time I got the degree I decided I didn't want to be a psychiatrist psychologist or any of those things you know and um, my college was near New York it was only a couple hours away so I was able to go down to New York and I went to you know I went to Marvel I'm, I'm hope I'm making this relevant here. I went to Marvel and they said, yeah, well, cool, but we don't really have any space or time for people to drop in on us. I mean, they were nice about it, but it was like, we're busy. And I went to DC and that same day, whatever. And, and they were like, do you want to see somebody here? I mean, I, well, want to go talk to Julie Schwartz? And I said, sure. And Julie gave me a half hour of his time. And, and, you know, I mean, so, Little by little, I came to understand that comics business was not run by demigods. You know, it was, uh, as you say, maybe today you have to really scheme to, to get into it. But um, in those days, it was like, well, if if this is what you want to do, I mean, you had to have talent. You had to have, you know, you had to have the prerequisites. But um, it was Marvel in particular. I mean, again, going back to my particular thing, Marvel was really just blowing up at that point um and they were looking for more people to work there and and um you know i mean it, it was it was very much right place right time so i i wouldn't say there was there was no grand scheme on my part how am i going to get into comics it's just like i said to myself i'm going to get into comics <laughs> and then and then sort of applied myself to that um in those days of course pretty much everybody had to live in the New York area. Right, right. Because there was no FedEx and no Internet and none of that stuff. And there were people who didn't. Sal Buscema lived in Washington, D.C., and John Severin lived down in Denver. But um, And I think by that time, Kirby had moved to California. But by and large, you had to physically go to New York so that you could hand things to people and have them handed to you. But at the same time, that meant that pretty much everybody who did comics was in New York. And so, like a million other bubbles in New York, we had our own little sub-group of, of New Yorkers. Um, and every and so everybody in comics knew everybody in comics. And that meant whether you were the guy who just walked in off the street or whether you were Wally Wood or Bill Everett or, you know, Will Eisner... Uh, you were welcome. I mean, it was just a brotherhood kind of thing. Nobody, nobody looked down on anybody and said, "Oh, well, you know, they haven't done anything yet," which would have been my case at the at the beginning of all this, or 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 any of that. It was just so. It was a group of people, and you got to know them, and they had a business, and they were looking for people to work in the business, and if you could, if you could make it happen you know if you could do what they needed you to do then you could do it and i would just i would just add to that because something you mentioned in passing but i mean that was you know that really was the extent of it and so when i got started and they gave me captain america they you know they said here you're writing captain america and the only the only editorial oversight that Roy gave me was you have to turn this in on time every month and you have to make it sell. 
And if you can do those two things, you can keep doing it. And if you can't do them, then we'll fire you and we'll get somebody else. <laughs> right. And that was, you know, I mean, so if you imagine Captain America now to just walk up to some guy who had just started in the whole business and say, here, do whatever you want to do, <laughs> you know, but that's the way it was. Right. Mm-hmm. That was that was it was no more structured than that. Can you do Can you do a comic that we consider good? Well, then you can keep doing it, you know. I mean, expectations are, are some somehow a great thing sometimes, right? Because I know that if you think about the X-Men, right? I mean, before Claremont, um, you know, mm-hmm. took it over, obviously the book had been canceled and it was a low seller and, and largely right. a flop. And, and, and I think about that with you with Cap. I mean, it, although it's it, he's arguably one of the most, if, if not the most iconic character in, in Marvel lore, um, I mean, my understanding is the book had been a, a, a pretty terrible, at least for the time, um, seller relative to other Marvel books. Um, right. And, and you you took it over. If I'm not mistaken, it, it went to number one, right? So I guess uh, that's why Roy didn't fire you. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, that that guaranteed me, you know, at least more work. I mean, but, it, but that's... It was... I mean, I did The Beast first, and then I got Captain America and the Defenders right together, and not too long after that. And so to have turned Captain America into an icon as one of the first things that I ever did pretty much made people say, oh, well, maybe we should pay attention to this guy. Um, and I, you know, and I remain, I mean, now, I mean, again, the, the thing with Captain America was it wasn't selling. And and the reason I can say in retrospect, the reason that it wasn't selling was because he was being billed as the living legend of World War Two. And nobody cared about World War II, and nobody cared about war during the Vietnam era, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, my my brainstorm was stop ha- stop identifying him with anything specific, and go more for the ideals of America, and that as we just said, you know, made the book take off, and 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 it really everybody said, yeah, I. I I can get behind that Captain America and it's become, you know, it is, it's Captain America. Now that's who Chris Evans played. I mean, you know, that's the character. Um, so, you know, I didn't create Captain America, but, um, I figured out how to make Captain America work, I guess. Um, and you know, I mean, it was just, I'm just sitting there trying to figure out what the heck I can do to, to do a good comic and, and happened to hit on that. And, you know, things took off from there, but it was, there was once again, no grand plan. It was just sitting there going, huh, what would I, what would I do here? What would I do? Yeah. I just like to springboard a bit, uh, from your description of Roy's basically hands off, um, approach to editing Mm -hmm. and, uh, having worked or let's just say produced, um, content for Marvel for so long. Was there a period when you noticed that, hey, things are changing here. This is not as as free and organic as it used to be. I'm getting mandates from editorial to do certain things that don't fit within my game plan. Um, I have an idea when that changed, having been a longtime Marvel fan, but I want to hear if we still, if you and I have the same idea of when the shift occurred. Um. Well, I mean, I think the the major shift would have been Shooter. Yeah. You know, 
wanted everything to to follow rules. Um, but it was but he was the end of a process. I mean, because Roy, you know, Roy took over from Stan and and decided he didn't like being the guy who had to go upstairs and talk business with people. That was not his forte. Um, so then either Len or Marv took over and then either Marv or Len followed him and then Archie Goodwin took it over and then Jerry Conway took it over and then Shooter took it over. And, and each one of those guys, you know, had some idea about how they wanted to be as an editor. And, um, you know, so I, you know, I had my problems even before Shooter with the changing approach to things. Um, but so then, you know, so I left comics and, and went over and wrote the Batman and justice league stuff and then got out of comics for a number of years. And I went to work for Atari doing video game design and so forth. When I came back, shooter was in charge. So, I mean, I did not, I was not there during any transitionary phase. It's just, you know, it was Roy and those other guys, in my first incarnation and then shooter was there the second time around. Um, but yeah, I mean, shooters, the guy who, I mean, the story I understood was that, that people had gotten a little lax and they weren't turning the books in on time and Marvel was suffering for that. And so, you know, shooter made the trains run on time, which was a result, which was desired. Um, but his particular personality was that he really, you know, he wanted to sort of reduce it to a series of rules that everybody could follow, which was not the same process that Roy had had uh, instituted. And let me just say about that, too. I mean, Roy, I didn't know about this till a couple of years ago, but I mean, when Stan hired Roy and Denny to be his assistants, he told them they had to sound exactly like him because that was the only voice that Marvel had had, and that's what people expected. Again, that's a very logical sort of approach. Um, so Roy and Denny, you know, had their stuff edited to make it sound by Stan, to sound like Stan, um, until they sort of got their feet under them and understood exactly how to sound like Stan. So it's, it is particularly amazing that Roy, when he took over, did not make all of us sound like Stan. He just, you know, he said, do what you want to do. Um, I mean, the specific that I remember was he said, you know, we have so many books now that, that it's impossible to edit the way Stan had edited, you know. Um, but again, I, you know, uh, we come back to this. I walked in the door and they said, here's the rules. And I'm like, okay. You know, they could have come up with a completely different set of rules, and I would have said, okay, because, you know, I'm, I'm just getting into the business, and well, I'm not going to argue with them. But I just happened to walk in the door at the time, and me and, and, and all those other guys you were talking about, we all came in the door right around the time that Marvel really needed a lot of people to work there, and so they weren't going to be very, um, you know, overbearing about the whole thing. You just, I mean... The difference between my writing and Steve Gerber's writing and Don McGregor's writing, you know, I mean, it, we had very different styles, um, but we were all somewhere connected to the Marvel gestalt. But, I mean, we were very different, and, and that was fine. Roy liked that, and sales seemed to indicate that the readers liked that and so forth. Therefore, 
I mean, I'm jumping all over here for these overview questions, but I mean, um, I was not thrilled to have Shooter tell me that there were rules now when I came back. And in fact, I'm just going to keep going here, but that's good. Um, um, like one of Shooter's rules was that you couldn't use the word supervillain because nobody in real life ever said the world's word supervillain. That was his rule when I got there, and I went into him, and I sat down, and I said, you know, like, sure, we don't talk about supervillains, but the people who live in Reed Richards and Tony Stark's New York right, have faced right. Galactus and, you know, and a million other these guys, and they would distinguish between Dr. Doom and a guy who knocks over a liquor store. <laughs> they would come up with different words for those two things, and he could, he saw that. I mean, he said, yeah, oh, okay, I get that. That makes sense. And so the rule changed, right? So you could you could talk to him, but you couldn't, you know, I mean, you couldn't go in there and change 16 rules. You might you might get away with one or another at some point in time. He was he was pretty committed to his rules, but he was not unwilling to listen, you know. Um, so it was an interesting, I mean, it was an interesting dynamic there um but there was definitely less well i mean i i probably the rest of us probably had as much freedom to write what we wanted to but there was now the chance that somebody would come back and say oh well you can't do that you know or we want you to change that i didn't get much of that because i had a reputation by that time preceding me uh a as somebody who liked write unfettered and be as somebody who could get pissed off about it if you tried to tried to not allow me that so i mean shooter i think probably let me have more flexibility than he might have had with with guys who were newer to the business at that time um but you know i mean so bottom line was i was the time that i was there with shooter till they fired him um I was, uh, you know, I was reasonably, I, you know, I was pretty happy, but I mean, it wasn't the same anymore. It, it had become more rule bound and therefore, I mean, when you have a bunch of rules, you can hire people who aren't necessarily um, creative geniuses. I'm not speaking of anybody in particular here. I'm just saying, you know, you can hire people who can follow the rules and they can turn out the stories, right? But But are they operating from deep within maybe not you know so i thought that the books became a little less um bright and shiny under under shooter but they came out on time and they were you know they were somewhere in the ballpark that's right. a very long answer to whatever you started me off on no that's a very good answer um for me silver and bronze age marvel while it, it was a, a very open shared universe um, where, for example, you'd have an issue of the Avengers, um, and say Cap and the Vision are, are speaking in the in the foreground. You see Spider Man swinging by in the background, and they'd be like, right. "Oh, there's that Spider Man guy swinging by." Um, that was organic and exciting and unexpected. And yeah. I, I think when they when they began to put, um, you know, corner boxes on the covers, where if you want to read this the next part of this crossover thing this is post secret wars you know go yeah. to this book or you have to read this then it became an obligation it, it wasn't as organic and and free as as the initial stages of the marvel universe right and i think i mean again 
my experience as a fan before I got into it was I read everything by everybody. I just loved comics. And so I read Marvel's and DC's and Charlton's and Gold Keys and, you know, Wally Woods thing. And, you know, I mean, just all these different books. So to me, the whole universe was there for me to deal with, right? And so I liked the Marvel concept of like all of our books are in a universe. And so there is continuity and crossovers and stuff like that. So it was never, it was never an imposition as far as I personally was concerned to like, you know, buy another book because I was probably buying it anyway. Right. And, you know, and I liked following the stories back and forth. Now, once I started to work there, I got all the books for free. So I never had to worry about how much they cost or, you know, or, did I have to pay the rent that week or any of that kind of stuff? For me, it wasn't until um, uh, the Ultraverse, Malibu in the 90s, that I started, I did crossovers and started getting letters from people going, well, you mean we got to buy this other book, you know? Right. Which was really not something I'd encountered before the 90s, but you guys might have been feeling it in the 80s. I don't know. I just didn't, I didn't get letters like that. In the eighties, uh, yeah. I mean, I I, I was going to say I think that uh, I, I think this 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 the weight of continuity has been a a long ongoing process, but I think it's been born out of not just well. It's been I, I credit two things to it. One, um, just just there for a long time there have been a lot more books, right? I mean, yeah. When when you were when you as you said you were a comic fan before you wrote comics, I mean, you could you could literally buy. All, all the Marvel and DC comics pretty easily, uh, just because there weren't that many. And, and then, well, right? There were, well, there were, I don't know, there might have been 30 titles from Marvel and 40 titles from DC or something. Sure. I mean, they, it wasn't like they were down to just the bare minimum. Right, right. But, but, but And some of those were like Western and romance, though, right? I mean, so it wasn't. Yeah, but I read those too. Okay, okay. I read it all. I, yeah. I just. I'm a comic nerd. <laughs> sure. No, I guess the point I was thinking is that is that as as the the superhero universe of of published titles expanded, being um, being a, a complete a completist, which most of us I think were at least at our early stages, became harder and harder. Yes. Um, you know, and then the other thing is is again, uh, it's. I, for however long someone's been a comic fan, they've probably complained about the increasing prices, and yet we all continue to buy comics. But, I mean, certainly right. that has to play a role when you feel compelled to follow things. So, um, Yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah. comics. I forget yeah. what Malibu might have been, but it was that was probably two bucks, maybe three bucks. Sure. When Malibu uh, was doing that. Yeah, you know, we can we can definitely jump around. I mean, but since you, you and Vince were chatting about Shooter, I think one of the things that... Uh, I, I've always thought that Jim Shooter has... Um, He's probably the most divisive person in in comics in mainstream comics. Um, I think a lot of us really liked liked a lot of what we 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 thought happened under his watches, and and then, but obviously, as we peel back the, the layers or hear stories about his let's say management style, um, there certainly were were things left to be desired. But but it's, it's fair to say that that even though, like you said, I mean things were different when you went back and and Shooter was running the show. I mean. Is is it fair to say that you got along with him well enough? Because then you went and worked with him at at, at Valiant, and whatnot, right? I mean, you you you. Yeah. You know, I mean, you, it seems like you were willing to go back and work with him in other spots. Well, I mean, the story the stories that you are dancing around too, but I mean, the stories were that he would just 
decide he was going to like go after somebody and mm -hmm. and did um he never did that to me right so i mean i never i never got in a in a knockdown drag out with him and so we were perfectly i mean when he asked me to come work at valiant i you know i had no problem with that i didn't as I say, I didn't. I thought that things had become a little duller when he was in charge, and that was my personal opinion. But but not to the extent that you know they were terrible books or or you know anything like that. So uh, you know when he wanted me to work at Valiant, I was happy to work at Valiant. Yeah. One of the things I think, and I know that that Vince Vince often says that uh, his his favorite era of comics was was your your area in particular stuff that you did and, and Steve Gerber and whatnot. And then I think about it, you know, when I look at your your stuff, I, I think you had a very deft approach at being pretty subversive in a medium that didn't generally lend itself to that at the time. Um, I mean, I don't know, you know, our listeners range from from people our age to, to much younger. And I don't know if people know from your from some of your work, but but you definitely like you did some things. I mean, you you had you had the president of the United States commit suicide in Captain America. And True. and obviously that that even even today would be very controversial. Um, and so so I'm curious, as you were doing things like that, were you doing it like were, were you and, and Starlin and the crew hanging out at night laughing about this as you were scripting it, thinking, oh, let's see if we can get this through? Or was it just, you know, part of the process and you were a pretty political guy and it just made sense at the time and you didn't really think much about the fact that you were trying to get away with something? Yeah, I mean, we didn't really have to get away with it because if the books were selling and they were coming in on time, we weren't getting any pushback from Marvel. I mean, uh, I, uh, when I decided that I wanted the president of the United States to kill himself and Captain America, I didn't have to clear it with anybody. Nobody at Marvel ever gave me any notes on it or any such thing. I decided not to show exactly who the president was. I mean, we only had one, but, you know, but... Um, I decided I wasn't going to make it Nixon per se. That was my decision, right? But but in terms of having him uh, be the head of the secret empire and, and blow his brains out when caught and so forth, I mean, uh, that's just what I did. I mean, all of us were having a good time, uh, you know, finding new things to do. That was, I mean, that was what part of our mission as we understood it was was to you know take things forward to find new and new and better ways to do things um so i mean starlin was over there doing his thing and and it was you know it was not traditional in in a lot of ways um uh but we didn't sit around laughing about getting away with it because we weren't getting away with it <laughs> we were just that was just part of our thing i i mean another story that comes up a lot is about me and dr strange um uh frank brunner and i did a dr strange issue in which dr strange met somebody who pretty much was god um and uh we heard from new york that stan had maybe worried about that there were i mean uh, i i might come back to what publishers think readers are like but you know we heard that stan might have a problem with actually using god in the comics and that was like the, the i would say that's the only time that i ever heard about somebody thinking they might want to you know rein me in a little bit 
And so I did this thing, which is now common knowledge. I, you know, I wrote a letter to Stan under the guise of being a minister saying, hi, I'm a minister. And I really liked that comic um, and gave him an address in Dallas because I was flying back to Indianapolis where I'm from, from California for Christmas. And I was going to change planes in Dallas and, you know, to make sure that Stan's crack team of investigators never could, could crack this, this code. I mailed it from Dallas. So it had a <laughs> Dallas postmark, you know, <laughs> And that then, is world-class trolling. That is great. That is, that is next-level trolling. And then, you know, the word came back that Stan had gotten this letter who said, you know, that they really liked it. So that was enough for him. Roy used to say that Stan could be deluged by a postcard. And, and <laughs> you know, I mean, so that, that was me. Now, there's me getting away with it, I guess, if I really had to get away with it. I don't know whether Stan would have actually you know, told me to knock it down, you know, tone it down, knock it off or not. But I thought, you know, I mean, uh, I was definitely in the mode to, you know, to kind of see if I could put a stop to that. Um, and that's, you know, that is a common story. And it came out, you know, while Stan was still alive. And we have we have laughed over that, you know, I mean, he didn't hold a grudge or anything. Um, but uh, yeah, that's, the only time I can think of, because uh, again, with Doctor Strange, I wanted him to be cosmic. I wanted him to, you know, have even fewer boundaries than anybody else, right? And so, um, I didn't, I didn't feel that magic was going to work real well if I was being told not to go here or not to go there. Um, you, so. you know. With, with Doctor Strange, I and I, I've been meaning if I ever got the chance to talk to you, I wanted to ask you this. I had read somewhere, I don't remember where, that um, as you were winding down your your Doctor Strange run, and I guess it it never quite came to pass, but you had had this plan that that if executed, you would have had uh, Strange and Clea, who was his, his love interest at the time, um, kind of traveling through time. And at one point, she was going to have sex with Ben Franklin. Which it, <laughs> tell me if this is true, because I I, no, I, I need. I needed to have. I needed to have happened. Well, that actually happened. Oh, I it mean, did. Okay, that All was right. that was actually in the book. Um, uh, again, I can't, my tenure at Marvel at that point came to an abrupt end, <laughs> and and uh, so I didn't get to finish that story. But yeah, I mean, he Strange had been neglecting her, and and um you know again i like to do characters and i'm sitting there going well clea is just the girlfriend that's all she ever is and and i wanted to you know now you would say i wanted to give her agency um but i wanted her to do something and and strange was you know fighting to save the universe all the time and so he wasn't giving her much in the way of a girlfriend thing and Ben Franklin was supposed to be like hell with the ladies, you know? I mean, <laughs> so was Henry Kissinger. Power is an aphrodisiac, I suppose. I don't know. But, um, yeah, so uh, she had sex with Ben Franklin, and then my story ended at that point. So we never got to see where that might have gone. But, I mean, where it would have gone probably is that Strange and Cleo would have broken up, and how would that have affected him while he's trying to save the universe? I mean, again, <laughs> you know... I didn't, my books were never about, here's a guy who does magic, end of story. It was about, here's a guy, you know, and he does magic. But well, what's the guy about? And that's, 
you know, Strange had never really had any romantic problems, and I thought that would be an interesting way to kind of see where, you know, see who he was as a human being. But, as I say, it didn't happen. So, While we're on the subject of sex, yeah, uh, Jason described you as uh, subversive, and I think I'd add progressive to that list, too, because... Um, I think one of the the trademarks of of having read all your stuff is that sex and and sexuality were always presented in a very open and organic and and very natural way. For example, in in Coyote, you had char- mm. you had characters pre and post sexual encounter, just walking around in a kitchen, you know, making toast or something, yeah. or you know, be very comfortable in their nudity and. Uh, we we mentioned Valiant in Exo Manowar. Uh, you had one of the main characters, Ken, who was an openly gay man. And well, I, Shooter Shooter created him. I wrote that character, but Shooter okay. created him. But done very well. And uh, I think it's a testament to the fact that your stuff holds up very very well over the span of time because of things like that, where you're not presenting sex as you know for the sole sake of titillation you're just saying these are two human beings that just just had sex oh well that's what human beings do not not to excite the reader or to sell comics um i'm sure it helped but just that this is a natural process well i mean my my linchpin on all that i guess is batman in that with silver st cloud um I wanted to, just like I was saying about Dr. Strange a minute ago, I wanted to know who Bruce Wayne was. You know, I know who Batman is. I know what Batman does. But, you know, what is what who about who's the guy inside the costume? And and so I decided. To to really make him an adult, you know, if I'm going to define him, I'm going to define him as an adult rather than a comic book character who's said to be an adult it always bothered me i mean even as a kid it bothered me when you know lana lang would say to clark you know oh you know let's go have lunch and he would you know beg off you know i mean he couldn't he that he couldn't do that he couldn't go there and i thought really i'm just a kid but i don't think adults act like that necessarily right and so and so when i got to be an adult and got to write stuff um, I wanted to, to make Batman an adult male person. And so I, you know, I came up with Silver St. Cloud, who had to be a strong, a strong woman who could stand up to Bruce Wayne, who was reasonably intense, you know, I mean, uh, and I worked all that out and, and there had never been an openly sexual relationship in, com- in modern comics because the comics code had precluded it. And so it wasn't even something that people, you know, thought about and said, Oh, I can't do that. It's like, nobody even thought about it. It's just, we know we can't do that. Nobody goes there. And I, you know, I wanted to deliberately break that open. And, and, and so the best way to show you that Batman was an adult male person was to have him sleep with an adult female person. And, you know, what can I tell you if, if you go on in different direction, but I mean, that, that was Bruce Wayne. And and um, so that that had ramif. I mean, as much as 
the thing with Captain America standing for ideals. The idea of Batman being an adult person also has sort of rippled down through time. I mean, that's, you know, that's why they made that first Tim Burton movie. And, and nowadays, you know, Tony Stark sleeps with Pepper Potts. I mean, everybody, you know, it's, everybody's got a sexual partner now. Um, but that was really the first time to do that. And it was, it really came from like my saying, not, you know, saying uh, the way to show that he's an adult is to show that he has sex. Um, and it was in the comics code. We never saw them, you know, naked on the floor. It was always post-sex, pre-sex, flirty dialogue, all that stuff. But it was pretty clear, particularly the way Marshall drew it, you know. Right. It was pretty clear that, uh, you know, that's what was going on. Um but just in general, I would, you know, I would say, yeah, I never, I never like freaked out over the idea of sex and, and thought it was weird that comic book characters usually did. Right. Well, to, to your point, I can remember, I believe it was an issue of DC Comics Presents where um, Lois enters the frame and she's got this nice purple dress on and Superman looks at her and says, hey, Lois, is that a new dress? And I mean, the scene culminates with him kissing her. And Superman mm-hmm. kissing Lois, and I thought, "Wow, that's pretty amazing!" Like, because you you never really saw that, right? Yeah, yeah. It was. I don't know. I mean, you know, it was also in the midst of the of the sexual revolution. You know, um, the anti-Vietnam War thing, the women's rights, black rights. I mean, there was a lot of ferment going on at the time, so it wasn't like. Um, you know, I was way out in left field by wanting to wanting to put sex into comics, but because um, it was definitely in the air, but um, hadn't been done. And and I mean, I don't. I'm, I thank you for saying how organic and all the rest of that stuff it was. But I mean, you know, maybe if it had been done by somebody else who had a different opinion about sexuality and things would have gone differently thereafter you know right mm. uh, i'm amazed at at the 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 narrative that crops up every now and then in fact it just recently did with with some some you know talking head about captain america that uh, people act like like people get shocked when when they say oh comics are political now and i always laugh at that because i think if if have people not been you know none of these people clearly read comics because comics have always been political i mean really since the very start i mean it's been a, a way for for the and it's natural i mean you want the writer's voice and beliefs are gonna are gonna come through i mean it's it's hard hard not to why shouldn't it right and captain yeah, america captain america number one absolutely captain america is punching hitler in the face yeah right yeah exactly right. exactly yeah right. and, and that, one of the one of the things too about about the the time is is you know you you obviously had had in, like we talked about with Captain America, you had you had some of your 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 political and progressive views in there, but like with Doctor Strange and you and Bruner, I mean, um, it it seems like you definitely you got to play with with things like you know astrology and 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 mysticism and the Kabbalah and things like that. I mean, yeah. were, were those interest were those areas of interest like academic areas of interest for you at the time, or or were you like absolutely actually into things like astrology and the Kabbalah? I mean, I'm just curious how much of it was just passing interest or things you were really into in the moment. It was well. It was a. It was a. It was a path, really. I mean, mm-hmm. when I, I mean, if I want to try to figure out who Bruce Wayne is, 
I basically am carrying around enough knowledge of what men are like to, you know, to to figure out who Bruce Wayne might be. And if I want to see who Doctor Strange might be as a man, I can probably figure that out, too. But if I want to figure out who Doctor Strange is as the Sorcerer Supreme, then I don't know that stuff was my was my take on it. And I thought if I'm writing this book now, I should learn that. I mean, you know, I should I should come to understand Western magic better than just, you know, by the hoary hosts of Hogoth, and then things happen. So um, there was a, used to be a bookstore um, in Manhattan called Wiser's, which was the occult bookstore. I mean, it was, it was big, and it had everything, and it was in New York City, and it was, you know, it was a touchstone, really. And so I just walked in there one afternoon and, you know, found a salesman and I said, I just, I'm, I'm starting at the bottom here. What can you show me? You know, what can I get to kind of like learn things? And he turned me on then to astrology and Kabbalah and, and tarot, you know, all these, all these, uh, things. And I went away and started reading them academically and then found, Oh, I think this is interesting. So then I did get into it. And, and, um, you know, so on a personal level, I, I've stayed interested in that sort of stuff on a professional level. I mean, I did not want to turn Dr. Strange into a walking textbook. So I was judicious in, in doing it. But when I did mention stuff, I, I knew that I was getting it, you know, it fit the, it, I was going to say right, but I, but it's magic, right? Magic is in the eye of the beholder. So I don't know if it was right or not, but it was in keeping with what I was learning about, I'll put it that way. Um, but that was, you know, again, that was me. I wanted to write, I mean, Dr. Strange as the Sorcerer Supreme knows stuff that you and I can never know. And yet I'm the guy who's supposed to write him. <laughs> so I figured the more I could know, the better I could, you know, I could do that. Sorry, I had a uh, I had a little internet issue there. I'm having bad storms. Um, yeah, yeah but Depp, were you about to jump? Yeah, I don't want to talk over you, Depp. Uh, no, I, um, because it was weird to kind of segue this from the sex talk. But one of the um, knowing that uh, as I look back over the things that I've read growing up, um, and I see your name attached to a lot of it, and I I, I think back fondly at at uh, post-crisis with with green lantern corps and mm. i absolutely and and you know staten and farmer on art was fantastic but but the thing you you obviously you had a whole group on earth um and basically it it no secret to anybody who knows me that that that, that my favorite lantern is hal but um I'm I'm just I am kind of curious um because at the time I'm reading it it doesn't really it, it's no big deal to the kid that I was but looking back now it was kind of um awkward for Hal to return um Irish's affections after she mm. mentally aged herself with her power how did but I'm curious how did that come about was that was that completely your doing yeah, I was, you know, I had this group of people, they were playing off each other, you know, and, and we would, we would do a Salak story or we would do a chip story or we would do a John and Katma Tui story or, you know, whatever. 
Um, but one thing I like to do with groups is make sure that if you're doing, if you're featuring somebody, you're not forgetting everybody else in the group. You know, I mean, I always tried to keep everybody's lives moving along one way or another. Um, and Aresia had just been mooning over Hal for a long time, and she has this power that allows her to do what she wants to do. And so she did that. Now, you know, when she did that, she was no longer a teenager. He was no longer in danger of being, you know, arrested for this. But he found it weird, right? I mean, that was the storyline. He was like, well, what? And she's like, no, this is what I want to do. Um, it, it was, I, I liked just the weirdness of it, the, the awkwardness. Because Hal, you know, Hal is like, I, I want to say prototypical good guy. I mean, and in many ways, all DC characters used to be prototypes. I mean, they never, they hadn't really come alive for a long time. But True. I mean, to me, Hal is the guy who's just, you know, he's a good guy and he's doing, you know, what he should do. He took on the ring. He's, you know, he's the Green Lantern. Um, John Stewart was the more um, revolutionary guy. Um, although, you know, he had mellowed out a lot by the time I took over. And then Guy Gardner was the crazy guy who just, you know, went off. But um, Hal, you know, I mean, if, if Aresia had done that with Guy Gardner, he would have had her in bed in five minutes. <laughs> it would have been no problem, you know. Yeah. But but with Hal, it was like, oh, I, you know, this is, this is weird. But she was, I mean, she was a full-fledged Green Lantern, and this was, you know... She may have made the decision with a teenager's mind. You, I mean, you got to give her that. But I mean, she was she was using her agency in that regard um, and her ring and everything to you know to get that. So, and then everybody else was freaked out by it. I mean, it, mm -hmm. it was it was. I thought it was really it was fun to write. It was interesting to sort of explore that. Um, did you find it when you look back on it now? Are you finding it creepy? No, no, only because I'm reading it with, I guess, a little bit more of a mature head and and uh, a little bit more experience. Where it it I can even if I'm just imprinting it myself, I can kind of see the nuances there. It, it it isn't just it isn't so cut and dry. It isn't, and yeah, I think part of it is that Hal is is stiff. He he is by the rules. He's he's you know he's probably he's he's DC space cop and. You know, it's it's mm -hmm. it it the way you're explaining it absolutely makes sense when you break down all the other males on the team. Kilowog wouldn't do anything because obviously, you know, he's just a big teddy bear. But it it's it's it does it absolutely it makes sense. And and because you had John and and Catman together, and and uh, Frisia has, so oh, she's she's not trying to feel left out. It 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 doesn't. It didn't creep me out then because I was young. Seeing everybody else <laughs> react to it, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things where it's like what just Jason was just talking about with Captain America. Pe people kind of seeing what they want to see, or or it just putting their own spin on things and filling in the blanks. But it, it's as the years have gone on, it's it's not as um, it's not as as uh, if I'm going to compare the two. I think probably the relationship with Slade Wilson and Tara Markov would be a hell of a lot more creepy. Hmm. Well, I, again, I, I, I haven't read that story in years and years, my story, but, um, 
I mean, I tried to explore the nuances, as you say, tried to explore the situation. Um, so, you know, I hope that that's there when, when you go, when you, when you read through it again. Um, to me, there was never any, <clears throat> any uh, child pornography involved in that sort of thing. No. Um, because she grew up <clears throat> on, at her, you know, on her choice. Um, later, later, I guess I did that thing where Star Sapphire was going around being a dominatrix, particularly yeah. to Harold Hammond. And I remember people, I remember people did react to that a little bit. I don't really remember any, any reactions about the, about the, uh, guy and Aresia stories at the time. And we did see the letters. I mean, so I'm, I'm not, it's not like somebody took all the negative letters and didn't show them to me. They were all, you know, they, I, I did see all the letters and I don't recall, you know, it's been a long time. Maybe I've, maybe I've forgotten, but I don't recall people freaking out about, uh, about Aresia and, and how it seemed to me that they understood what was, what was going on for sure there. Yeah, well, it was before the internet. But, I mean, it's then it's, at that point. Yeah. Um, You know, I mean, times do change. People's attitudes do change. Um, I don't, I would still think if you actually read the story, you would not think there was anything, unto, you know, anything untoward sure. going on there. Um, uh, so I would suspect that it would be people who would go, oh, wait, I, here's here's a summary of what it is. It sounds creepy. It is creepy. That's the end of it. I don't know. I don't know. I mean... It no, it needs never... to be. It, it, it would need to be. You absolutely would have to. Yeah, reading a summary about it, it may give off that uh, that indication. But there's no. I mean, once once you see what everything else is going on in the story. I mean, I you had me buying it month in month out. I I was and and then you had me go and buy Millennium, and it was mm-hmm. one of the only it was one of the only events that I've I bought every tie in issue every week. So it, it was. I mean, you. You really, when, and, and again, I mean, even going when you went back to Marvel, and you know, you had me, you had me buying a Silver Surfer comic, and mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, the Marshall Rogers art helped, but I mean, you had me buying a Silver Surfer comic, and that was another question I had is that you know when you had, you bring the character into the Defenders, and all throughout most of my up until that point, comic reading life, Silver Surfer of course is stranded on Earth or can't leave Earth's orbit, and. Right. And of course, in that first issue of Silver Surfer, you finally have Norrin Rad leave the planet. Did you always have the idea of what it would take to get Silver Surfer to leave Earth way back when? Or did did that come to you when they asked you to write the Silver Surfer book? Yeah, when they asked me to write it. I mean, when I did the Defenders, Stan had recently departed the premises and he said all the characters that he created were fair game but not the silver surfer and and then you can debate whether he created the silver surfer but that's not a story but he wanted he wanted the silver surfer to be kept in you know just for him so that if he dis, did decide to write more comics that could be his character um fine you know and so Roy had used the surfer a couple times in the run-up to the Defenders, um, and I liked the surfer, and I, and so I 
being brand new to the company at that point and you know uh all that stuff but i had whatever you know to get in touch with stan and say could i use the surfer you know in this book and he was nice enough to say yeah don't use him all the time but yeah you can use him you know um so I used him, and he was part of the Defenders, and, and they were a team and that wasn't a team, and they did their things and all that. Um, and there was no question of him getting off Earth. There was no reason for him to get off Earth if I wanted him to be part of this group. Um, but then if you fast forward 10 years, um, you know, I really thought that thing about being stuck on Earth and flying away alone was had been done to death. I really thought, man, we, we are sick of seeing that. And I mean, John Byrne did a silver surfer thing and it didn't, it didn't sell. Right. And I thought, you know, it's just like people are tired of this. It's time to do something else with him. So one day out of the blue, I got a call from shooter who said, I want you to do a silver surfer series. And I said, I thought Stan had said that was reserved for him. And shooter said, that's what he said, but I'm in charge now, and we want to make some money. <laughs> you know? Um, well, okay, you know, if, if your editor-in-chief says that he, that's what we're doing, then I guess we're doing that. So I said, well, the first thing I want to do is get him off Earth, because this thing is just way too past its sell-by date. And Shooter said no. He said, you know, that's that's part of the surfer, is that he's stuck on Earth. And, you know, and I said, well, okay, you know, I mean... Fine, I'll work with that. And so I did a first issue um, with John Buscema, um, Surfer on Earth, meets Mantis, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I plotted a second and a third issue. And then all of a sudden, I got another call from Shooter, and he said, we've decided to let him get off Earth. <laughs> and, and I don't, you know, I don't know why he changed his mind. You know, I, n I never asked him why he changed his mind um but so we we that first issue that i did ended up in marvel fanfare years later you know whatever but we just started all over again and so then um that i mean th to me that was just a no-brainer really i mean we were tired of him being stuck on earth but if you got him off the earth then he could go out into space and he could meet all the Marvel space characters and he could have space adventures and he could do things that he couldn't do when he's stuck on Earth all the time. And, I mean, it just seemed like if you're going to do a series about this guy, you need to give him, you know, opportunities. And so I was very glad to be able to take him off of Earth. Um, and and then in the third issue, he met Mantis. <laughs> you know, I mean, had to re recalibrate that. But, I mean... Uh, yeah, you know, and Marshall was doing great art. Um, uh, it was, you know, that was that was a fun, fun run. Eventually, Marshall, you know, he was not a fast artist, and he sure. really couldn't keep up on a monthly basis, so um, he bailed. But uh, then we got Ron Lim with Joe Staten in the middle. Joe Staten gets forgotten, but Joe Staten, I love Joe Staten from Green Lantern Corps, but, you know, I mean, he's just a great guy to work with, so... I don't want to jump over the fact that Joe Staten filled in while Marvel looked for somebody permanent. And, and then we did get Ron Lim who went on to draw it for the next 112 years. Yeah. Uh, you know, Seriously. I mean, so it was a nice, it was a nice, um, 
time for me to be doing that book. While we're on the subject of uh, Marshall Rogers, one of the things that struck me uh, initially about the Surfer series was that his art, in, to my eyes, was a drastic departure from the style he employed on your collaboration on the Batman stuff. Was that a, a conscious effort on his part to, to, to change or evolve for that series? or I think just in general. I mean, if you saw the coyote that we did, we did, you yes. know, the first coyote was, the, was one we did for um, Eclipse. Um, and Marshall was getting more, shall we say, cartoony. I mean, he was, he, the people in the background of his stories began to be sort of geekier looking or weirder looking or whatever. I mean, he, so he was developing what he wanted to do as he went. But also, I think with the, I mean, with Batman, Gotham City is a character in Batman. I mean, you've got to have a, you've got to have a really good Gotham City and Marshall drew a great Gotham city. Um, he was, you know, he had studied architecture. Um, and so he understood buildings and he understood how cities worked and stuff like that. And so, you know, the Gotham city that, that we were in was like a big dark city. It was, you know, it was cool. Surfer doesn't have any of that. The surfer's out in the middle of nowhere, right? In fact, I used to joke with Marshall. I said, this guy's so easy to draw. He's naked and he's in the middle of nowhere, right? How, how hard can it be to draw that guy? Um, uh, so I, it was a combination of Marshall evolving, as hopefully all artists will, you know, to get more and more toward exactly what it is you want to do. Um, and the fact that the surfer was a different milieu, you know, right. from, from Gotham City. I mean, the Joker and, uh, you know, the elders, I mean, they're just very different. You, you know, you would want, I would think you'd want a different, you know, you want a different art style, want a different feel in general. Right, right. Speaking of Coyote, mm. uh, again, uh, the book has been uh, home at uh, a number of different publishers. But right. I can remember reading the Eclipse stuff and uh, segueing into the epic. And I thought, I had never felt this way before, but as soon as the psychotropic drugs came into the picture and the mythology and the myth, I thought, oh, I, here's a kindred spirit. Because mm. those subjects are very important to me. And... Um, Looking back at Coyote now, it actually was a progenitor for what would eventually take place at DC with Vertigo. Yeah, well, I mean, again, that was the first. That was the first character that I actually owned, and so in that in that first story with Marshall, I think the first words that get said are "What the fuck?" Yep, <laughs> and and. Uh, you know, he falls for Philida because she's got big boobs. I mean, it was just like he's a primal spirit who's not really familiar with the ways of the big city, Las Vegas. Um, and the fact that it was Las Vegas as opposed to New York or whatever, I mean, that had an effect too. I mean, so I was able to start doing things that I couldn't do um, uh, in regular comics. And so that included everything you just mentioned. I mean, it was like... 
Um, I used to say he was raised by coyotes on peyotes, you know, I mean, he, he was, um, he was this kind of spirit of the spirit of the desert uh, kind of thing. Um, and primal, um, and, you know, it was an animal spirit. I mean, there were a lot of things that just came together to make him who he was. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, and then I did, along those lines, Rick Jones, later in Captain Marvel, he did take some vitamin C, and that seemed to give him hallucinations. <laughs> uh, you know, that was in the code, so it was vitamin C, but but it was pretty clear that, you know, right. Rick Jones was tripping out, and, and he was connected <laughs> to Captain Marvel, and you know, so now Captain Marvel's tripping out, and he didn't know what the hell's going on. I mean, it was just, we were just having a good time exploring right but uh lusty vicious i mean the the violence in in coyote was amazing if i can call it that um Mm. and 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 it's i'm all the i have all the single issues i have all the eclipse stuff and the image trade paperbacks and it's one of the i think it's one of the towards the point the pinnacle of your work for me i just love that book well good i i you know i had a really good time on it but it was never a, a, a big sales success. Um, right. uh, I, you know, part of it was was sort of self-inflicted in that Steve Lealoha decided that he didn't, he didn't really couldn't keep up with it either. And I had never, since it was my book, I had to find a new artist. And and to this day, my basic training in all that regard is that. Marvel finds the artist for you, right? I mean, right. all the books that right, I did, right. all the books that I did, they said, you're writing it and Joe Blow is drawing it. It's like, okay. And next month, Joe Blow's going somewhere, so Fred Schmoe's going to draw it next month. I'm like, okay, you know, that's just the way it was. So um, it, I couldn't find somebody to take over immediately. Butch Geis was kind enough to do the third issue to get me through that. And then I got to Chaz Truog, and I love Chaz Truog's art. I just thought it because it was sort of primitive. Not, I mean, he can really draw. You can, you can, if you look at it, he really knows what he's drawing. But he has this style, which is, which is kind of like, uh, well, not primitive, but I mean, it's like you were carving it in, in right. totem poles or yes. something like that. And I, I loved it. But we got a lot of people who didn't love it. Um, and so eventually, you know, and, and that was a case where when there started being, I said before, I got no letters about Aresia or whatever, but I did get letters about Chaz Truog and I, you know, and I kind of looked at it and I thought, well, this is my book. And on the one hand, I want it to succeed. On the other hand, I want it to be what I want it to be. And, and I'm happy with Chaz. So, um, you know. I stayed with Chaz and, and I think, you know, probably paid some sort of price. And all of that sounds like I'm edging him toward the bottom of the bus. But it's but really, I, I'm i a big fan. I, I'm a big fan of what he does. And he did it later with Animal, well, Animal Man, right? Was that it? The one that he did at DC? Yeah, with Grant, yeah. Yeah, with Grant. Um, you know, so point being... I certainly heard from people who did not like Coyote, 
Um, so I'm, you know, I'm always pleased <laughs> to have somebody say, yeah, I actually liked it, you know. Well, Chaz is actually my favorite artist for that book, for yeah. all of the reasons you mentioned. And yeah. I think it, it's worth noting that um, the Comics Journal felt the same way. Uh, as a longtime reader of that magazine, I was actually taken aback when Comics Journal praised Coyote. Because, mm -hmm. you know, as, they, even, even they, though it was in the indie realm, they still right. had their darlings, and superheroes weren't that. Um, right. So how did you manage that uh, relationship? They seemed to be, uh, at least in, in your case, hands-off on your stuff. Like, you were okay in, in their book. I guess. I mean, I never, I never had a personal relationship with those guys. I mean, I, I, you know, Comics Journal was a, was a big player had a big footprint but as you say they weren't really interested in superhero stuff so um uh, there was very little interaction between me and them and so whatever their opinion was whether they you know i mean if, if their opinion was that they liked coyote that was their opinion and again i'm glad glad to see it but i didn't um you know, I didn't send them candy and flowers <laughs> saying, right. please like my book or anything. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think Gary would have cared. Yeah, well, <laughs> so, so, uh, I mean, I think, uh, see, it's been, I have, I have an overview on everything, right? Because I, because I've been at this for a long time. And so I've been able to see things with, you know, different eras different perspectives and 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 um i think i just lost my train of thought while trying to set that up but <laughs> maybe maybe it'll come back to me um yeah i don't know it'll come back but it's gone now okay i had a quick follow-up about the you just mentioned that that you know throughout most of your your, your tenure, Marvel or DC pretty much told you who you were going to work with artistically. Um, mm. And, and I, I think that was the way it was, certainly. But I, I was I, am, I was interested to hear you say that only because I guess I assumed wrong, wrongly that you at least had some active role there occasionally. Because like, like you, were, you and Vince were talking about with Marshall Rogers, I assumed that, that your work with, with, with him on Detective informed you that you were like, I'd love to work with him again. Was it just random that he came back to work with you? At, at well, random. No, I mean, Marvel chose him. I mean, okay. I yes, my work with Detective made me want to work with him again, mm -hmm. and we did. We did the Coyote thing there, but um, uh, he was slow, and he, you know, and he had, he was, he was in love at the time, and he was, you know, he was courting this girl, and and so on and so forth. I mean, so he was not available, you know. But I mean, um, no, I mean, Marvel said, "Oh, let's put Englehart and Rogers together again." Uh, and so I was informed that Marshall would be drawing it, you know, uh, but I didn't. Starlin and I co-created Shang-Chi. And and so we went to Marvel and said, we want to do this book. And that's the only time that I can think of where I ever, you know, I mean, there might have been. I'm sure, Yeah, there were certainly places where I could do a one off with Al Weiss or I could do right. you know, this or that. But but, uh, you know, going in and saying we too want to work together on this series that was unique in those days um it's another thing that you just didn't really think of because because you were turning out periodicals and and so you could say i want to work with somebody 
what Marvel's concern would be, can both of you turn the book in on time, you know? Um, so they tended to want to put people on who they knew could turn the book in on time. Um, Starlin certainly fit that bill. So, you know, they were, they were good with that, but, um, uh, it was, it was just, it, it just, that's just the way it was. Right. I mean, again, that was, here's, here's the rules. It's okay. Sure. Whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that, 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 that is super interesting. Cause I guess I had assumed differently. Cause, cause and I, I had also thought that, um, I guess I had heard a story and, and maybe it sounds like it was erroneous that, that, that Bruner came back to do strange because of your friendship and that he thought you'd have good ideas. Or was that, was that like him reaching out and saying, oh, I, I, I think Steve, it'd be fun to do it with Steve. Or do you remember, or was it more just again, random? No, no, I think that, I think that's actually accurate. He was okay. already doing it. Yeah, he was, yeah, right. But he then was he doing was doing it with right. Gardner Fox. Yeah, right? and then I thought he left because he didn't like Gardner's sort of right storytelling. Right. Yet. Frank had a lot of good ideas, and and Gardner, you know, Gardner was from the forties, and Roy liked people from the forties, but that didn't necessarily mean that they could write for the seventies. And you know, again, I don't, I don't know that I ever met Gardner Fox. I didn't, I don't want to disparage him either. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of you know, the entire industry and how we got here and all that kind of stuff. But, um, Frank, I, from what I understand, Frank said either I'm leaving or I already have left here because I'm not being able to do anything interesting. And Roy said, well, what would you want? And Frank said, you know, well, I think Steve Englehart would have, you know, good ideas and we'd be on the same wavelength and so forth. So, uh, that is a case. That's another case of, of somebody asking, uh, for somebody. Um, I'm trying to remember if, I mean, Starlin on Shang-Chi is the only thing I can really remember saying, you know, I want, you know, a particular person. And again, I hadn't really, I hadn't really suffered under this regime. I mean, I got to do the Hulk with Herb Trimpey, which I thought was fabulous. You know, I mean, super cool, yeah. You know, I mean, I I got to do Strange first with Brunner, and then and then with Gene Colan. Uh, I mean, it was like the idea. I mean, the people who were actually working in Marvel were usually pretty good. So if they said, you know, we're going to put this guy on, it wasn't, you know, wasn't going to be some stiff, really. Um, but it's just you know, I was I was unused and 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 I'm still unused to to actually finding an artist to draw stuff. Probably at some point we'll come around to the fact that I've I've written a couple of things now, um, and I'm having to go see you know how do I find an artist to get get them drawn. Um, I'm hoping when I go to some cons this fall, I can, I can talk to people, you know, but it's like, I, that's not, that's not something I ever really learned how to do. Right. Well, hopefully Marvel's doing right by you with this upcoming Shang-Chi movie. Yeah. Well, Marvel with the movies, they don't consult us at all. They don't, I mean, they did with Starlin for Thanos, but in general, because Thanos was everywhere, but in general, they read the they read the source material. They take it and make it what they want it to be. Um, 
at least in my experience, they've never come around and said, what did you have in mind or, you know, any of that kind of stuff. It was just like, but if they do use your stuff, you get the credit. And if you created the character, you get royalties um, from the movies. Um, to be clear, I get royalties for, I will get royalties for Shang-Chi and Mantis and Star-Lord. I will not get any royalties for Captain America. Right. right I mean, sure. just, that's yeah. that's the way it is. But they do, you know, they that was and, and Disney was proactive on that. Disney came to us and said, we want to offer you guys a certain amount of money if we use the character you created. And, and um, everybody, I think, negotiated their own version of that. But, um, uh, you know, that was that was them. Uh, I naively thought that having done that 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 dc would follow suit but dc never has that so. and I, I don't i and i know vince has something that he wants to get to but that was i i did want to do you feel that because i and i, and I remember reading a comics interview where you were quoted that uh vicky vale was actually silver saint cloud in right. the batman movie right. um and i know that in in years past especially with the nolan trilogy they have they, they they have given credit and I think money to past Batman creators for for some of the work that they've done in 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 the comics that were that could be interpreted as as source material. Do you do you feel that um it was just a, a that you maybe not not missed the boat, but that it was because it was a different time that it, were it different where were other people involved at Warner Brothers that that maybe you would have gotten credit or at least had a more favorable experience i don't really think so i mean to me marvel even in its earlier days was a business and now it's now it's disney now it's a giant corporation but there's always been a human side to marvel there's always been you know and i probably because of stan and writing all those different humanized characters and so forth but there's always been that feel whereas dc has always been just a business. We pay you money, you give us stuff, we own it, thank you very much. You know, I mean, that was, that's been DC's motif right along. And so I don't think anybody, you know, if it hadn't been Jeanette, if it hadn't been Paul Levitz, you know, I don't know that it would have been any different. Um, that's just DC's ethos. Um, and, but I, but I will say, you know, I've, I've made a point of this over the years my unhappiness with what they did to me on the Batman movie. Um, and I've got a few other beasts with them too. And have made a point of saying so, because I really think they need to wake up and smell the coffee and, and, uh, but they don't, you know, there's nobody there who does, who, who can, as far as I can tell, even though there's been a, you know, a turnover in people over the years. Um, so you mentioned the Nolan movies. I mean, I I and also know that some people got paid for characters and and things in there. I did not get paid, and there's definitely stuff taken out of of the Dark Detective runs that is that's in that movie. I mean that that ballroom scene with the Joker and Batman right. dancing with Silver Saint Cloud. Yep. I mean that's that's direct from the comics, and and I don't know if you've seen it, but but there's a still from that movie, which is exactly the same picture as Marshall's panel art. Um, 
of them of Bruce and Silver dancing. I mean, so you know, they took that stuff and very deliberately didn't. I mean, got to be deliberate. They didn't pay me for it. They didn't credit me for it. Um, and and just one final. I mean, that's my statement on that. But what's really weird, and I doubt that anybody saw it, including me, um, when the Zack Snyder Justice League came out, I sat through all four hours, and, yeah. and uh, you know, there were parts of it that I liked and parts of it that were pretty boring and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But I, you know, I stuck it out. But when, I, when, when it was over, I turned it off, and it wasn't until other people came and said, did you see that you got a credit? Like I did, and I went back, and yes, the very last thing that you see when that when that thing plays out is a special thanks, and I'm one of the people that's listed, and I'm and I'm like, why, <laughs> you know? Because there's nothing. I did write the Justice League, and I did write Batman, but there's nothing in that movie that like directly came from my stories, and the story that I hear and asking around is that. Snyder just liked my stuff, you know, that wow. it was inspirational. It was inspirational in that regard that it gave him, you know, a, a, a tone, an idea of how to go about things. And so he threw in a credit for me, you know, um, which is, you know, uh, DC never does that. It yeah. always, you know, they never credit any particular people um, for anything. Um, so, you know, Thank you, Zack Snyder. That's for, that. You know. That's awesome. Because I mean, I'm glad you said that because I was about to go back and try to rewatch it and and see if there's like a New Guardians cameo or something. But that's no. But you, you got to go all the way or you know fast forward at least. But it is the very last thing in the movie. But okay. there it is. You know, and it's interesting who is on that list. I, I haven't looked at it now since the thing came out. But there were people who I thought would be on the list who weren't. You know, if he's just sort of making up a list of people he liked. Or had been inspired by. Uh, I want to say Neil Adams is not on that list. I could be wrong, but it, but there were people like that where I think, well, really, you know, that's not there, but I am. So <clears throat> it's all you know. But anyway, as far as DC is concerned, you know, they bought it from me. They own it. They can do whatever they want with it, and they don't have to. They don't owe me a thing. Um, and I'm sort of of the opinion that they do. So. <laughs> You know, so um, I've made that point, and I, and and um, now we're on the cutting edge of this, and it, and this could this is just speculation, but uh, I saw this article about how there's going to be a new Green Lantern series, and it's going to be starring Guy Gardner, and and the article that I read, which I'm sure must have come from the DC publicity department at some point, said you know Guy Gardner was created by John Broom and Gil Kane. And his best era was when Keith, uh, blank in his name, but when, you know, when he was written in the Justice League. Oh, Keith Kiffin. Yeah, Keith Kiffin. Did not, it didn't mention me and Joe Staten at all. And, and we're the people who created that Guy Gardner, right? Yeah. It's the same deal. We, you know, DC won't pay us any money for Guy Gardner. We think we ought to be paid for Guy Gardner. Um, and, and I, you know, that's, you know, you're hearing my stories. I'm not going to name any names, but, but I've talked to other people who have taken an existing character and made uh, that character extremely popular and they don't get paid for that. You know, I mean, my, yeah, I mean, my advice, is that the any, rivet of claws or, 
Yeah. yeah, one. That, I mean, I I don't. I'm I just throwing this there. I have no idea if this is the case, but like I, I certainly hope Marvel pays Joe Kelly for the Deadpool films, right? Because I mean, like the the the, the Deadpool the in those films yeah. is is Joe Kelly. I mean, yes, Rob created the character, but but the character was was a a lead in a lead in killer until Joe Kelly put his role in. But but I get your point. I mean, it's yeah. And I don't know if you saw um, Steve, but uh, but Tom King when he was uh, writing Batman, he he uh, I think. You probably did see this. I'm sure someone meant, he very publicly uh, mentioned you and a number of other creators that he thought should be given uh, credit on any Batman that, uh, yeah. that, that comes it, in. So. Yeah, I did see that, and I appreciated that. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the thing is, I've done so many different things, right? And I, you know, and I've had a long time to do them and all that sort of stuff. So it's if if I never get credit for the Batman, are you still there? We are. Okay. The the background hiss kind of went away for a second, and I thought, oh. you know, if I never get credit for the Batman, hopefully I've done enough other stuff that people will be, you know, will will find something of note that they that they enjoy. But I think I should get credit for the Batman. I think I should get credit for Guy Gardner, you know, that sort of thing. And I also think that that's – I just don't think that's in DC's DNA, to, you know, you could hire, I mean, it's why it's now, now, now it's rant time, hopefully not too long, but I mean, that's why their movies are not consistently. I mean, you know, if you hire Patty Jenkins and you give her a good script, she can turn out a good Wonder Woman. If you hire Patty Jenkins and give her a bad script, she'll turn out Wonder Woman 1984, right? I mean, it's like they, there's, they don't have, they don't have a Kevin Feige. They don't have anybody who actually cares about the characters and wants to do something with them. What DC's approach is, let's hire somebody famous and he can do his version of our character, you know? And it's like, so then you get the Christopher Nolan Batmans and then you get, you know, the Tim Burton Batmans and then you get, it's, it's, but none of them is Batman, you know? There's no, there's no emphasis on Batman. It's the emphasis on look how cool we are that we got Christopher Nolan to do this for us, you know? I mean, but, but DC just doesn't understand what makes, in my opinion, for good comics. I mean, when they hired me to write the Justice League and the Batman, it was they said, Jeanette said, we want you to do with the Justice League what you did with the Avengers. Come over here and give them characterizations and, and stuff like that. And, and, you know, I mean, she understood that she needed that, but they never, you know, once I was gone, they, they didn't, you know, make that the new company uh, approach or anything. It didn't change anything. Um, so I'm sorry, you know, I mean, I'm sorry that that's true because... I love the Batman. Batman, first comics I ever read were Batman comics. Um, I love Batman as a character, but I would never do Batman again. Um, you know, because uh, it would be for them, and and I'm tired of I'm tired of showing them who Batman is, so that other people can make use of it, and then you know they can they can sort of go out of their way to stiff me on it. So uh, not a big DC fan. You may have gathered. <laughs> right. You know? I, I think I mean, go ahead. when you disregard so blatantly the uh, mythology and the people responsible for it, 
not only doesn't it bode well for the outcome of your film, but it sets you down a bad path karmically. Be- mm. Because, because there, this energy that was infused in, this, in these early stories that people obviously connected with, uh, many people, and to just openly just disregard that stuff in favor of a, an up-and-coming, you know, auteur or whatever they want to call it, I, I, th- I just think it, 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 it um, karmically is not a good idea. And we see the the proof is in the pudding. Their movies are are lackluster for the most part. Right. I mean, Wonder Woman, the first Wonder Woman, was good. And then I was one of those people on Christmas night who sat down to watch Wonder Woman 1984. And half an hour into it, I was like, God, this is... (laughs) Same Speak on it, Steve. Yeah. (laughs) Speak on it. (laughs) Um, It This is not working. Um, yeah, and yeah, I, I looked, and, and the difference was the script. I mean, it wasn't the same people who wrote the second one who wrote the first one. Patty Jenkins was the same. Gal Gadot was the same. But you know, the stories matter. Characterizations matter, and and you know, whatever. Yeah, um, I, I don't know how you make a Gal Gadot movie that's unwatchable, but they did it. They did. I know. Yeah. I know. Mm. Um, Steve, just like on the so. Uh, focusing on the on the Marvel stuff because obviously Shang Chi is looming. Um, I'm curious. I mean, a few times you have said, and I, I don't maybe I'm just paying too much attention to tense. You know, you 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 were a big comic book fan, so I'm just curious. Over over the years, have you have you not kept up with the the medium? And then, sort of a, a corollary to that, um, you know, having had a hand in, in in so many of these characters, and in particular creating a few of them, um, like Star Lord, like Mantis, when you watch. Guardians, uh, or you maybe I don't know if you've seen the screener. When you do watch Shang Chi, like do you do you do you take pride of, of, of authorship? Like does it excite you for what it is, or, or or do you feel like oh this this is totally separate? It's a totally different vision for me. I mean I'm just because like as a as fanboys, right? As people who grew up reading this stuff, we have ownership. Like we feel like we have ownership in it, right? Like we you know I sit there and tell my kids and wife like I was uh, you know this is a comic that I've been reading for thirty years, and you know so I would imagine in my world if I was if I had a hand in creating it or telling great stories, I might have immense sense of pride, but I also don't have to think about like the, the financial angle and, and, and credit there. So I'm just curious, like, do you have any kind of pleasure or emotional attachment to these characters when you see them in, 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 in modern format or form? Yeah, I do. I, you know, one thing I learned a long time ago before there even were any movies, but I just heard, you know, and, and, and internalized that, Nobody wants to hear from the writer. You know, they don't want the writer coming around saying, well, but I had a different vision here. It's like, no, no, we're working on our vision now. Thank you very much. Right. I understood that. Um, And so um, I didn't go into the movies with the idea of like, I'm going to live or die based on whether they're faithful to my characters or not i like it when they are right i mean i you know i mean i i would hope that would be the case all the time but it's not and so you know i sit there i mean my example these days is mantis the only relationship between my mantis and the one on the screen is they're both female they have no other overlap whatsoever um and so i started saying you know well that's not the mantis that i did and I was at a con in, in Vancouver 2019, when we still had cons, um, and um, Pam Clementioff was there, and she plays Mantis on screen. And 
I went over to introduce myself, and she first thing she said to me was, I hear you don't like me on the screen. And I said, no, I like you on the screen. I like your character on the screen. It's just not my character, you know? And, and I think it's, for me, it's worth noting that it's not my character, but I like the Guardians movies. I like you in the Guardians movies. I like, you know, but it's, but, you know, and, and so one of the perks of being in this situation now is I do get invited to the premieres in, in LA on Hollywood Boulevard with the red carpet, all that good stuff. Um, I don't go on the side of the, of the carpet where I get interviewed, <laughs> but I'm, but I'm there. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, I was able to go to the after premiere party after guardians two and and you know so i i went up to james gunn and i said you know knowing that he doesn't want to hear me say gee you didn't do my character so i just said you know what were you you know what were you trying to do with mantis there and he said well you know i needed a character who could do that stuff so i did it you know he wasn't he didn't take offense i wasn't offensive you know but i mean that's and i get that i mean you're trying to put together a group of people over two hours that have a story. So you gotta, you know, you gotta make them all, all fit together. Um, and so when I see Mantis on screen, I mean, I get to walk around and I say, yeah, yeah, I created Mantis and everybody goes, yeah. But an interesting thing is I also realized that, that if it hasn't happened already very soon, most people are going to think that's Mantis. There's right. going to be a whole lot more people who know that Mantis than the one that I, you know, wrote right. for years and years. Um, there's nothing I can do about that. I don't, you know, it's not like I feel I need to do something about that because that's just, you know, that's just reality. And I, you know, and I understand that. Um, so I go to the movie. I see Mantis and Star-Lord on screen. I go, yeah, cool. You know, I created characters which have now morphed into those situations uh you know jim starlin and i co-created shang chi shang chi movie is done entirely by asians who are you know who are working to give it an asian sensibility that i mean we did our best but we're not asian you know whatever so that's going to be different in, in a number of respects i'm sure i have not seen it i won't see it probably until the premiere. Um, um, oddly, DC did send out a screener for Zack Snyder's Justice League, but Marvel never sends out screeners. Um, so I haven't, you know, I won't see it till then. I won't know what it is until till I'm sitting in the theater finding out. Um, but you know, it's just different. I mean, I remember early on. Fight scenes in comics are a place for people to think things. I mean, you get a page full of action, but what the writer can do is is get inside people's heads and, and you know, advance the plot and advance the characterization and all that kind of stuff. And I was very struck watching the first Avengers movie, how people would fight, and that's what they did, was they fight. And and it, it doesn't advance the story at all it doesn't advance the characterization at all and that's because it's a movie you know we don't have thought balloons 
unless you want to do voiceovers, you don't have any way to do that. And so, you know, movies and movies are two hours long. Comics are sort of open-ended if they want to be. I mean, there's all these different parameters which are different. And I get all that. So, you know, I don't, I do not go to the movies thinking, well, I'm, I'm going to be bummed out if it's not just like a comic book here, you know. Um, WandaVision, right? WandaVision's another uh, thing that comes from my material. Um, and and I did get credit, you know, but I didn't create Wanda or Vision, so I didn't get any money. Um, uh, they took it, they ran with it, and, and I enjoyed what they did with it, you know. So... Um, I mean, we could never, this isn't what I was heading for before when I talked about an overview, but I mean, back in the day, the idea that they'd be doing movies like this, that was inconceivable. I mean, I said nobody thought about having sex in comics because it was just not even possible. Um, making movies out of that stuff was not even possible. All we had was a couple of, you know, bad Captain America movies and a mediocre Doctor Strange movie. I mean, that was that's what was done in the 70s. And so you could look at that and you could go, well, you know, clearly they're never, never going to do a movie out of this stuff. That was part of my motivation. Again, when I, you know, when I was doing Batman was I, I wasn't thinking, oh, they can make a movie out of this. And possibly if I'd known how that was going to work out, I wouldn't have gone down that road in the first place. But But I did want him to be somebody who could, be more, as they say, a grown-up person could be something that non-comic book people might find something that related to them in there. And it did, you know, it did sort of start down that road and a number of others to, you know, to, to make that decision. Um, but anyway, I mean, con movies, it's amazing to me that I'm sitting here now after all this time and they're making movies out of this stuff. Because when we did it, you know, I mean, we did it to entertain you in the moment. You know, comics came out monthly. The stories moved right along. It was done, you know, the, the, the only audience, I mean, the audience was three quarters of a million people in those days. The people who read comics. But it was only them that we were trying to entertain on a monthly basis. So it, it is it is strange to me that that stuff has really you know somehow or other has 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 stayed relevant after all this time and not only relevant but now they're making movies out of it so right um it's it's been a long strange trip as we say <laughs> uh, some of your early work appeared at one of my favorite publishers uh warren uh-huh. And uh, as a, a person who was steeped in, in fandom from the get-go, uh, I can't tell you how many stories I've, I've read and heard about Jim Warren's incendiary temper and, and just his, his, the way he operated as a publisher. Having at least been there for a short period of time, uh, can you speak on any of that? Uh, what was the, the climate like at Warren? Um, are the stories true? I don't... Well, it's kind of like what I said about Shooter. Warren was always nice to me. I mean, very nice. He, he, you know, he'd take me to dinner. He would, you know, and I was like nobody, right? But I mean, um, I, I liked Jim Warren a lot. Um, the stories that I heard more were like, 
he would in, in take his date back to his apartment and show her his bidet. I mean, he, he kind of liked to show off his, his um, you know, he, he was young, he had money, he was a publisher. I think he kind of liked to play that role, to, to do that kind of thing. But the explosive temper, I, I, you know, I really am not too familiar. I, I, nothing's really coming to mind about stories like that. And certainly, you know, at least my experience was that, um, you know, I, I had a good time working over there. If, if Marvel hadn't, like, because when I started Marvel, I was on staff at Marvel for $100 a week. But... Um, you could supplement that with freelance work. That's what was expected that you would do extra work and, and, you know, and, 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 and make money that way. But since I was just starting out, Marvel wasn't going to fill up my plate. So I started writing Vampirella, um, and loved writing Vampirella with Jose Gonzalez. I think that's who it was that yes. I was working with at that time. Um, and, I have nothing but good things to say about that. I, I, you know, I enjoyed writing the stories. I loved the art. Warren was nice to me. And then after about three issues, four actually, but the fourth one never got published, um, Marvel decided they would like to fill up my dance card. And so they, you know, they gave me Hulk and Luke Cage and, and other stuff. And so I had to give up on, you know, I couldn't very well say, no, I won't do your, your work, Marvel, so I can keep writing Vampirella. I was not, I was not in a powerful enough position to sort of pull that off. So right. and, you know, so fine, I'll 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 just write Marvel stuff here now. And and but I was sorry to give up Vampirella. That would that was fun. Right. And I got nothing else to say about you, Warren. I I liked him. Right. Well, I've read that the inverse of what you're talking about was true that if you worked for Warren and he smelled freelancing you freelancing at other places, he would not take that too kindly. But uh maybe maybe at other competitors. Yes. You know, like, uh, but not I don't think superheroes were his competition. No. I no. mean and again, I mean I don't I don't really know the ins and outs of it, but Archie Goodwin had started that Vampirella story and then T. Casey Brennan took it over and I don't T. Casey Brennan was was a very um, he wanted to do what he wanted to do, and I think that might have been a problem up there. But then it was me, right? Um, and and perhaps Warren didn't want to get on, you know, didn't right. want to like drop the hammer on me if he if he had been dropping it on T. Casey Brennan. I don't. I really don't know. I can right. just say I got the work and I enjoyed the work. Yeah. Now there's a guy uh, about which you never read a bad word, and that's Archie Goodwin. He seems to have been universally right. yeah. loved. Too mm -hmm. true. Yeah. Um, he. Um, yeah. He was. It's funny because Archie was was intelligent. You knew he was intelligent and and a good guy and all that good stuff. He was a big fan of TV wrestling, which I never could understand. <laughs> oh, nice I, progress. There you go. Yeah, I, I'm like. Dude, you know, it's all fake, you know. I mean, it's like, yeah, yeah but, I, <laughs> but I really funny. like it, you know. <laughs> um, so, I mean, he was an interesting guy. But, he, but you know, he was he was intelligent. He was, you know, he was a good editor. He was a good writer. A uh, good guy to hang around with. Um, unfortunately, he got cancer, and you know. Yeah. And and toward the end, he was, he was um, 
you know, he was not what he was, as cancer will sometimes do to you. Um, so, um, but until that point, I mean, until that point, he was, you know, he was great. Uh, the, the um, you know, we were talking, earlier we were talking about how you led off by saying, Back then, you had to be in New York. It was the place to be, generally speaking, with a few outliers. Right. But, but it, you know, it seems like when I've read, um, you know, like many people, I've tried to read a lot about that time. And, and certainly there have been some books and, and many books written about that time and some, some focusing on, on Stan specifically, but, but others focusing on the history of Marvel. And I'm sure you've read some, maybe have right. opinions on, on some or not. But, but the one thing I, I, I did want to ask is it seemed like in, in, in a few of the books, it, it, it like portrayed – your era at Marvel of having like a pretty tight knit crew, you know, you, Starlin, Al Milgram, Al Weiss, it, 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 like meaning it portrayed it like that you weren't just bullpen coworkers, but you were legit good friends. You spent a lot of time together outside of work. Um, I mean, yeah. is that true? And, and have you been able to like have have you have those friendships sustained over the years, even though you've all moved to different spots and done different things? Yeah. Well, the first part of your question is yes. I mean, we <laughs> were. We, you know, we were all, we all sort of showed up at the same time for no particular reason. It just, um, we all showed up. We liked each other's work. Uh, we were all hanging around together. Uh, and so, yeah, we were, we were, we were good friends. Um, when I moved to California, they all moved, Starlin Weiss, Tom Orzakowski, Frank Brunner, you know, they all moved out to California too. And we sort of had the same crew out here, but little by little, they decided they preferred the East coast to the West coast or whatever. I mean, and so Frank lives in South Carolina. Now Starlin is upstate New York. Weiss is in Manhattan. Um, or Zakowski's in Ohio, I think something like that. Um, so I, I will say that we've probably gotten farther apart in a, you know, in all ways, uh, well, that sounds dire. No, I mean, I mean, logistically, we're farther apart, and so we don't, you know, we don't hang around together as much or at all uh, these days. But when we get together at conventions and so forth, um, you know, when we are in the same place, then yeah, we're still good friends. That's great to hear. Um, you've mentioned cons a few times, so that that was I was actually going to ask about that. We we try and hit a, a bunch of cons, but obviously we are somewhat different geographies we and we always do new york though and we we always uh we try and do heroes and and we're heading out to emerald city this year for the first time so um how, how many shows a year do you typically and obviously we have to put the pandemic aside but but uh, but outside of the pandemic window i mean do you do a lot of shows typically no not really um that's one thing where i have sort of um i mean i enjoy shows if i if i go to a show I have a good time. I, I enjoy sitting there and talking to people about stuff and, you know, I mean, whatever. But the but going to the show and coming back from the show and living in a hotel for the weekend, not, you know, as high up on my list of things to do as, as it once was. I used to go to, like, any convention that I could find. Um, but now I probably only do, like, maybe half a dozen shows a year, maybe not even that many. I turned down a lot of shows. I, I live on the West Coast, and I don't really like flying all the way across the country, so I tend not to do East Coast things. 
That said, the first one I'm going to do this year is Boston, <laughs> uh, the first weekend in September, because I, I kind of, you know, I mean, just with the pandemic at all, I said, I, you know, not really sure if I want to go back to a room full of people, some of <laughs> whom may not be vaccinated. Yeah. Um, but I thought, you know, I, you know, I got the Pfizer shot. I'm supposed to be pretty good for all this kind of stuff. And and so I thought, well, if I'm going to if I'm going to break out and do cons this year, then Boston seems like that'd be a fun one to start off with. Um, but at this point, I'm only I'm only scheduled for three. I'm going to do Calgary and I'm going to do Indianapolis, uh, Indianapolis because I'm from there and Calgary because it's reasonably close to the West Coast. Um, I was invited to Dragon Con and I said no. I was invited to a couple shows in Atlanta and Dallas and I said no. You know, it's like I'm 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 picky now. It's it's I wouldn't you know if I ended up at a show at one of the places that I just mentioned. I mean, it wouldn't be like oh my god, I'm stuck here and I hate being here. No, I'd go enjoy <laughs> right. the show. But it's like I don't I don't really want to fly to Atlanta. You know, I don't, I just, um, just assume not. So I tend to be self-indulgent really in, in that regard. Um, if it's a show that sounds like it'll be fun for me, <laughs> then I, then I will go to it. You know, if I'm not convinced that that's the case, I'm just as happy to stay home and watch football that weekend, mm. you know? So, well, Steve, I've heard that uh, Seattle is beautiful in December. So I'm just saying, uh, Emerald City. It's, is it? Yeah, is Emerald City that. in December this year? It is. Yes, that's why actually why we ended up going because we can't generally make it uh, from the East Coast in in its normal slot. So we figured it's now or never. So, well, there I got invited to some show. I think it was in June in in Seattle, no, outside Seattle. But it, you know, I I don't remember the name of it. But I mean, nice guy. He invited me. But I but I'm thinking. June's a little little soon. Yeah, even though it's right on the on the right coast, it's like June's a little soon. Um, Just double I check mean, that Kevin Sorbo isn't in in, in any of these cons you're planning to attend. Uh, <laughs> he's, Why is he hard to deal with? Oh, he, he's he's a very very well known uh, uh, right wing guy, and he's yeah. he's been very public uh, with the anti vaxxing. Uh, I'm, I'm not getting the vax who's with me type of thing. So I said, oh, mental note, I need to check the the autograph solicits for these cons and make sure Kevin Sorbo is uh, a featured celebrity. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, no, I don't. I, you know, I'm, I'm. This is not why we're here, but I mean, I don't understand anti-vax. Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, that, I, yeah. I sheltered in place like everybody else right up until the vaccine showed up, and I, and I'm sure if apparently you guys have been vaccinated, yes. wasn't it a relief to get that? What you oh, immensely. Yeah, we, the not, three, the, the three of us, um, we, we are. We've been doing the show for almost 13 years. Great friends. Uh, we live in three different states, though. So we hadn't seen each other in 15 or 16 months because of the pandemic. So we had actually just right. got back together in person, uh, what, a month ago? Not that after Memorial Day weekend. Yeah, Memorial Day weekend. So that was it was a great treat, to your point. It's it's, it's great to reconnect with people. Um, yeah. You know, that's it, so for sure. Um, and so, again, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that by September in the north, in Massachusetts, Oh sure, it's it's not going to be a deadly concept to go there, you know. Sure. Um, I'm 
but I'm perfectly willing to, to listen to scientists, you know. Absolutely. If scientists say it's okay, then, you know, fine. And if they say it isn't, then fine. I'm, yeah. I'm going to do, I, you know, um, it just really, you, you can walk around in public now and not have to, like, worry all the time. Mm-hmm. But that, you know, and but not to put too fine a point on it, but, you know, Texas, Georgia, Florida, yeah. you know, oh, I mean, sure. you know. Do, they don't. They don't want to take vaccines down there. Do I want to go down there? I don't think I do. You know, right? So. Absolutely. There It'll be interesting to see if the cons. Um, I mean, we'll we'll know soon enough if the cons have, if different cons based on location have issues getting uh, creators to attend. I mean, we'll, I guess we'll we'll know soon enough because um, all the cons are definitely endeavoring to get back out there and and, and do a show this year. So, right. Uh, you know, um, I, I did want to to to. First of all, we've we've taken up a lot of your time. I want to thank you so much for for uh, for the the gracious uh, amount of time. Before we do wrap up, though, I, I you, you mentioned in, in passing um, during a conversation that you you know you you have something you've been working on, and that and that uh, oh, yeah. is finding is finding an artist. So so two things on that one. To whatever extent you're comfortable, love to to know more about that, or when we might hear more officially. But then also, I have to say, um, I, I'm sure I'm not alone in this. I, I think a lot of us could be very very helpful in in finding you amazing artists to work with like i think there's probably a lot of artists that would die to uh to work with you on a creator own project so i i I wouldn't i wouldn't i wouldn't fret that once you get out there and are serious about finding someone i think a lot of people would be able to help you make that happen well i hope so and again if somebody's hearing this and thinks they'd like to volunteer um i mean to get paid obviously but i mean um i've got a website which is steveenglehart.com and you you can contact me there's an email thing there um, no, I, I, I still like to write, you know, and, and when I got out of comics, I went and wrote novels and learned that I really am not a natural novel writer. I don't like writing scene description. I like to write dialogue. I like to write, you know, I want to describe a scene and let somebody draw it. I don't want to have to describe it, you know, in complete detail. That's just me. And, and so, um, I, sort of after that I kind of like said hmm well maybe I just won't write anything else um, now but it fairly quickly I started thinking but I like to write <laughs> you know uh, and so I started you know trying to think of stuff and, and um, the the one that I'm looking at now it's it's a four part it's a four part mini um, 28 pages apart. Um, it's it's basically a moon noir. I don't want to. I don't want to. It's the unfolding of the story is is the cool part about it. So I'm not going to say too much about it. But it's you know, if you're an artist out there and you think drawing moonscapes and and in a noir situation would interest you, then yeah, get in touch. Um, so, but it, you know, it's not connected to anything else that I did. It's just I'm I'm at the point now where I kind of go. Here's a character that I'd like to explore. I want to, you know, I'm going to write something with that character. But, but for better or for worse, I was I was taught to write coherent stories that hopefully would sell. Um, so I, you know, I mean, I think that this story, for example, is a good story. Um, I'm also perfectly aware that. Uh, you know, I, I said earlier, well, Gardner Fox, he was a 40s guy. He couldn't be a 70s guy, really. I think I can be a 2021 guy, but 
it, you know, first we'll put the book out and then we'll find out whether people agree with that concept. I don't feel like I've changed at all, really, in terms of being able to get inside people's heads. But, you know, that's that's part of being a mass market, having a mass market head, uh, which is another, sorry, but I, I'm trying to make several points all at the same time, which is not going to work. But, um, you know, I mean... I think I think it's my it's my opinion that when you see this story, uh, which is called West of Insularum, Insularum being a crater on the moon, um, I think you'll like it, right? But we'll find out when the time comes. Um, but yeah, I'm you know, I'm I'm still a writer by heart, and so I've got other other things too, but they're not they're not they're not ready to. To go out, but I'm just, you know, writing to scratch that itch. Really. Right. Well, I like I said, I, I I look forward to seeing these hit hit the uh, hit the presses. I want to see it in previews sooner sooner rather than later. So. Well, I hope so. Um, nice. Yeah. So I'm I am looking for an artist. That's all I can say. I'm I, you know have very little idea about how to go about it, but. Uh, all right. Well, anyway. I think. Listen, I think we're not. Alone. We can help, but other. I think others can help too. So now I have a homework assignment. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, first of all, thanks again so much for for coming aboard. Um, it, it's it's a true treat to finally get a chance to to chat with you. You know, we we do do cons a lot, but as we just discussed, we seem to never be all be at the same cons, and, uh, and hopefully we'll rectify that at some point. The the, the cosmic forces will align, but until then. Um, I guess this will have to be the next best thing. But uh, thank you so much for 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 coming on. And I, I, if you, if there's anything you think we haven't covered that we we should or that you wanted to make mention of while while you have the 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 podium, by all means. If if not, we'll we'll, we'll say thanks and uh, and we'll sign off. No, I think that's it. I've I've trashed DC. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, what else is there to do? Right. Uh, well, uh, enjoy the uh, enjoy the rest of, uh, of of the summer, and and I hope you you do get some some smiles from from Shang Chi when it hits the the theaters and all that good stuff. So me too. Well, I'm looking forward to it. They do good movies. So absolutely great. Well, thanks again. Very much appreciate it. Yeah, thank you guys. Have a great night. Have a great night. Thank you. Yeah, you too. Bye. Uh, how do you follow that? We can't. No, you, we can't. <laughs> just, we, much in your to, travels, and that's it. I yep. was going to say, much to some listeners' chagrin, where we we had thought, depending on the length of the interview, that we'd uh, we we talk some book, but uh, I think you were right to say, let's just wrap it up. He's a very hard act to follow, but mm-hmm. um, just to make it up to you, we're going to do two bonus episodes this month. I've decided. Nice. Well, we we do two <laughs> bonus episodes a month. Anyway. Well, we're going to do three bonus episodes. <laughs> I've decided. David's like, what? No, we got this. But anyway, yeah, that was extremely gratifying. Because I wanted to say this to him, but I didn't want to sound like a Chris Farley. But having steeped myself in the art form of comics in the days where there was no internet, right? Um, We had fanzines, but more often than not, um, you had to make an effort to get those. And uh, so there wasn't the omnipresent commentary by our favorite creators. Uh, more often than not, we didn't know what they looked like, 
right? All we had was that name in the credit box uh, to which we could associate quality or the lack thereof, right? And and having grown up reading Engelhart stuff, I always associated him uh, as an author that I enjoyed. So now to put a voice and a personality and a sense of humor and an intelligence behind that that name that we've read for so many years that was extremely gratifying like i didn't want to just slather him with praise i should have maybe but uh it it was amazing to just sit down with one of these guys that had a a very active role in my formative years it's yeah, cr- no it's doubt. crazy that that we have the luxury thanks to this bullshit technology we have the luxury of being able to speak with these people and, and commun- to communicate with, with our heroes. And it's just, it, it's just amazing. I don't want to sound like the old guy, but uh, it's one of the, the benefits of technology that I we finally got to talk to Steve Engelhart. It's totally. just bizarre. What, what else is possible? Well, listen, you know, you'd like to think that uh, we've been at this for a minute, so maybe we're, get, we're getting the hang of it. And uh, we, we, as we talked about a few weeks ago, on air, I don't remember if it was bonus content or, or main show, we do have a running list of creators, both uh, modern and legend status, that we would love to have a chance to chat with. And we've yep. been uh, rolling up our sleeves and putting in some uh, some work lately trying to make this happen. Yeah, Jason says we, but it's mostly he. No, you, you Just today you told us about someone that you're working on. That would be uh, awesome. Yeah, someone that we yeah. well hopefully will get, and uh, yeah, he, but he that, seems so. It's not just me, it's, it's right? We all, we all, but, uh, let's be honest. I mean, the one of the reasons why I so actively pitched to get this person is to kind of have you sit through it. <laughs> so yeah. other other than that, you know, I mean, I love. <laughs> Dude, I, <laughs> okay, first of all, I'm gonna probably if that if it happens, if we confirm it, I'm gonna probably catch up on some of this person's stuff that I haven't read, and I'll probably love it, and then it'll be great. All right. I'll give you guys a little teaser. He's the only writer to ever have followed Alan Moore and not fall completely on his face. Well, geez, if that people can't figure it out from that, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, I'm, I'm, I'm giving, right? We all are. And mm-hmm. you know who else is giving? Discount comic book service, because they give you the best discounts of anyone in the comics retailing realm. Write these down. You're going to want to buy into them uh, because they are important, and hopefully they'll be fantastic. Uh, from Dark Horse, Maze Book, number one, Jeff Lemire, you're going to pay two ninety nine half off. From Behemoth, Nobody's Child, number one, $2.19. And good old Dynamite is further plundering the Vampirella mythology by a little title called Vampiverse, $1.99. In your travels, Jason uh, is never unwilling to accuse me of hyperbole. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and more often than not, he's right. But in this case, um, I think, uh, if he read this, I think he would see the uh, very apparent quality of this book. It was written by Michael Morici. The art <laughs> is by Nathan Gooden. Colorist is Addison Duke. Jim Campbell did the letterers. He did the letters, too. And uh, it is a little book out of Vault Comics called Barbaric. Again, 
maybe me lapsing into my uh, my standard hyperbole, but this is, as of right now, leading the pack of the best single issue I've read this year. It's certainly the best first issue I've read. Uh, what's the rub? Well, the rub is that uh, Owen is a barbarian. And he does all things barbarian. He maims and, and, and kills and plunders. And uh, he's very good at what he does. And uh, he's achieved some renown. But he runs afoul of a uh, trio of witches. In this case, the fates. And the fates decree that he is furthermore cursed. He is now beholden to the right thing. He has to do the right thing. In every situa situation, he has to make sure that those wronged are defended. He makes sure that those who have committed uh, despicable crimes are uh, dispatched with undue haste. Um, the scene opens and he's, uh, he's under the thrall of uh, someone with power uh, in the typical wizard guys, bald, you know, big beard, rings, the whole thing. And uh, he has to uh, kill three people, two of which deserve it. Um, one, not so much. So uh, he's he tells this uh, this person, yeah, all right, I'll I'll kill the the two uh, despicable wretches, but the other guy I can't do it. I, I have to do what's right. Uh, the whole while he's being led on by his axe, and the the axe's name is Axe, and uh, it the axe speaks to him. Apparently. Owen is the only one who can uh, who can see the axe speaking. To everyone else, it's just an axe. But to Owen, it's an anthropomorphic axe. It has a face and a mouth, uh, which is attached to a face. And, uh, you know, uh, the, the axe gets drunk on blood. It just gorges itself on, on the blood of um, Owen's victims. And he gets drunk and actually does the whole Foster Brooks... <coughs> Um, deal, but um, so the later on in the in the first issue, um, while doing the right thing, good old Owen has to defend a woman uh, who is one of those things uh, he despises, and that is a witch. And the design of this lady is incredible. She has tattoos of weaponry on her body, and she can reach into her skin. Uh, she has swords on her forearms. She could reach into her skin and pull out, make manifest, the weapon from her tattoo. That is freaking cool to me. Um, it, like tattooed man. If, if, this, if the, the premise of, of a barbarian half to doing a force to, be, to do the right thing didn't win me over, or an anthropomorphic axe didn't, I think the fact that this young lady... Uh, who can who is a witch and can pull weapons from her skin that that sealed the deal i mean it, it's just a, an incredible concept but uh this issue is not for the faint of heart there is profanity uh, galore there is nudity and sex and massive violence uh throughout um in other words this book is speaking my language there's a scene 
where uh Owen is is uh reliving some of his exploits and and he's he's a fan of the 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 drink and he's also a fan of the ladies uh and there's one scene where um there's a giant what looks like an orc maiden and she's at least four times bigger or larger than uh owen and he's in there i mean he's (laughs) he's going at it and (laughs) it's just a panel that made me made me laugh out loud but uh uh i i think this book was absolutely incredible from um marici's writing was great nathan gooden's art is just chef's kiss ah, it is it's impeccable um uh, there is nothing literally nothing about this book that i would change i think it's an incredible achievement i'm in for the duration uh like i said the best thing i've read this year so far it's sexy, it's disturbing, it's wanton, it's it's lascivious. It, it, there there are uh, eviscerations, characters are split in half, and you get to see the interior workings of these things. Um, the witch, uh, the young witch at the end is just incredible. I can't give this book enough praise. Uh, I loved every line on these pages. Go get Barbaric. Right, David? It's... It's 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 so much fun. It, it's on my pull list at the shop because I don't want to wait to get it in my box. It's um, I've read it, I've read the first issue twice. I it's the art is absolutely phenomenal. It's funny. It's clever. Um, I yeah, and and there's some pages where it seems a little wordy, but it is so worth it. I I had a blast reading it and. Um, and yeah, and and I, and, and, and yes, um, you know, while her tattoos and the ability to do what she does with them isn't um, necessarily um, original, because I, you know, like I said, the, the the tattooed man over at DC could do that. It it looks great on her, and uh, and and um, I thought it was uh, I thought it was absolutely it. it Introducing her and her abilities um, made me laugh because, you know, Owen's trying to do what's right because of this curse. And, and oh, oh, it turns out you are a witch. She's like, well, yeah, but it, and it, but I'm a good witch. They're, right. Their conversation is, is hysterical. It's it was it's it's fantastic. And obviously she is a uh, I don't think she's going to be like a, a throwaway character because she's no. going to cover the second issue. Yeah, so yeah. Um, and. This book does not flinch. There's a scene where Owen, mono a testicle, crushes a character's balls in his yeah. hand. And yeah. they, they could have done it. It, it. it wouldn't have been as effective, but they could have done it with the, you know, just the busts of each character and have him, you know, the hand off panel squeezing the yeah. balls. But there's a an inset panel where you see this character's balls in Owen's hand and the blood is shooting out of them and they, there's a pop. Oh, you, you hear the, the testicles pop. It's like, oh, I love this book. I just love it. <laughs> One of my favorite panels is probably when uh, when Axe realizes that uh, she could hear him. He's like, oh, you could hear, oh, it's a miracle. For oh, yeah. The only, I've only had this oaf to talk to, but now there's someone finally, someone else. Oh, my God, the poor Axe. Yeah. The Axe is great. The Axe is probably my favorite character. Yeah. I want an enamel pin of Axe. That's, well, here's that's, the that's deal. What I want. If Vault doesn't parlay these character designs into action figures 
maybe designed by four horsemen. I'm just saying, you know, somebody at Vault's not doing their job because Owen and Axe just scream action figure. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, it's, it's, it's a great design. I, I had a blast with that. I can't wait for the second issue. This yeah. was a lot of fun. Um, I hope there are multiple printings of this. I hope it really does. Uh, oh, there's a black and white one coming. Yes, I yeah. know, and I didn't. I, I didn't double dip because you know, and and Gooden's art is is fantastic, and and would sing in in black and white. It, the colors are great in this issue, but um, I might if I'm going to double dip. I maybe I'll wait to see if they do a collection of um, of issues in, in black and white, and and I could see me. Um, going for that but well i don't think the black and white one was solicited yet i'm pretty sure it wasn't because they didn't but maybe you're right yeah because i i would be as a publisher i'd be very reluctant to say hey we got a black and white of this one coming up without seeing at least some of the numbers on the first issue sure right that makes sense yeah so i don't know i regardless i'm getting it yeah of course you are just like the the last ronin you're going to spring for the 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 sketchbook Eastman's sketchbook that's currently in the previews. Oh, I didn't get there yet. Oh, oh yeah. What issue is it? Is it the first issue or just a sketchbook? It's a sketchbook featuring designs for issues two and three. Oh, well, then, yeah, of course. Yep. yep. No brainer. My man. Oh, fantastic. Jason uh, won't get it because he doesn't get anything good. <laughs> <laughs> in, in, in your travels, I, um, I, I, uh, I caught up on an issue. Uh, I caught up on a series that I, I spoke about recently, uh, and it went off in a different direction that I wasn't expecting. Um, but uh, the the Shadecraft by uh, Joe Henderson and and Lee Garbett continues to um, just blow me away. Um, the Garbett's art, of course, fantastic. Love the characters. Zadie is great. Her brother, Ricky, um, and there may be some air quotes around brother because uh, depending on the issue you're reading, uh, it may not be him, but I think it is because the guidance counselor that was introduced into the second issue uh, isn't who she seems to be. And Zadie's mom isn't who she seems to be. They, They... I thought this was going to be an issue, a series about a young woman who um, has abilities or is haunted or being stalked by by shadows, something creepy going on out there. It isn't. It, it's well, it, it's not what I thought it was going to be. And and I am really, really stoked for where we're going now. And um, and we got some backstory on mom in uh in in the fourth issue um the the third issue was fun because there were zadie's kind of getting used to to her abilities to to manipulate shadows and um and it's just what 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 did like i said what they're doing isn't the impression i was getting just from the first issue and um and reading the last couple back to back just um, was bittersweet because I wanted to keep reading and I don't have the fifth issue. And um, but it just makes me that much more psyched to to I, I I can't even wait for the for the for the image 
PDFs to arrive at this point. But um, I, I just think the character development, the, the relationship Zadie has with her parents, and because and, her parents are kind of young, um, and, and they're a lot more down to earth than you may have thought they were um, early on, because Ricky... Zadie's brother, his physical form, of course, is in a coma, and mom was taking care of him at home. And um, and after dealing with the situation, uh, her parents, Zadie's parents, have finally decided that, um, you know, instead of keeping him at home, we'll have a facility watch over him. And, um, and that may actually um, come back to bite them in the ass but the way it's playing out uh every time i turn a page every page i turn i sit up a little bit more because i can't believe this happened or i can't wait to see how this plays out it's just it's it's a fantastic series it's 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 one of images funner ones for me it's uh it's you know i mean they're they're on a really good role with um with this with the good asian uh with made in korea i'm 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 enjoying um a lot of the the current, of course, you know, the first issue of vinyl came out, so I'm I'm enjoying what 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 Image has in store for us with these these early uh, these younger new series. Um, but yeah, in your travels, get caught up on Shadecraft. It's it's uh, it's crazy. It's a lot of fun, and um, and yeah, I I, uh, I can't wait to get more of it. Respect, respect. Um, listen, it. If you know me, you know that there was only one thing that I could pick this week. Had to be it. In your travels, if you haven't already, you got to give X-Men number one a try. I was worried. I was worried. I was worried when they announced that Hickman was giving up the titular book. I thought, uh uh-oh. But then they said Jerry Duggan was going to write it. I said, okay, okay. He's been doing a good job in the X-Verse, so I got faith. Then we got the Planet Sized, which uh, Vince co-signed as being amazing. And I thought, okay, all right, I'm feeling good. And then uh, now that I read this, I'm like, why did I have any worries? Because it's freaking awesome. Duggan wrote it. Pepe Larraz, which has become like Marvel's go-to guy. I feel like every time they have a big book, they're like, all right, Pepe, you're going to draw it. Um, justifiably so, by the way. Uh, did the art chores. Uh, Marty Garcia on the colors. Clayton Cowles on the letters. Your team is Cyclops. Gene Gray. Sunfire. Sink, Wolverine, a.k.a. X-23, Laura, Polaris, and Rogue. And I love when a team book gives you a little bit of the column A, old classic characters, and a little column B, characters that you don't see as often. To me, that's the perfect recipe. They did this. I was nervous that they said that the, the main team was going was gonna to live in New York. I thought, what's the matter with Krakoa? I don't know why I worried about that. Uh, they build a fucking treehouse in the middle of the park in New York, and it's like a Krakoa treehouse. It's, it's amazingly designed. Um, I love the issue, man. It was beautiful to look at. It was action-packed. There was intrigue. Ben Urich shows up, Dap, if you haven't read it. Trying to do his investigative reporting. Not uh, yet, but okay. Yeah, Ben Urich's like all up in the business. We're trying to figure out what's going on. Um particularly interested in the fact that uh, that um, it seems like mutants who he knows for a fact were legit dead or not dead anymore. And he's like, yo, Cyclops, what up with that? And uh, and Vince, 
as a fan, longtime fan of of Sentai, yes, this book plays fan service to you. I'm not trying to spoil things, but all I can say is when the X-Men face a big bad in the middle of New York City, a giant kaiju monster that they don't seem to be able to take down, what do they do? They use their combined powers like we've been seeing a lot in the Hickman, right? You got the you got the resurrection crew, you got the the sword teleportation crew, and now the X-Men they they built a fucking giant mech to stop, fight, stop to fight the kaiju dude. <laughs> and it was a one-off because after at the end of the book you see they actually do something cool with the mech. They they re, they repurpose it. But I was like, holy shit, this is like this is like Voltron. This is like Power Rangers, man. Like, like, all right, we got to combine and whoop this thing's ass, and they do, and it's amazing. I, there's nothing bad about this book. It was, it was <laughs> wonderful. It's so, good, to, good to hear. The you only thing bad, you know, the only thing bad is that Pepe La Raza is digital. That's the only bad thing. <laughs> but because uh, I would be about about buying the pages from this book, but uh, yeah, it, it was great, man. I'm so happy that uh, that Duggan took the baton and. And kept uh, setting an Olympic pace. You don't know if um, Pepe does the uh, Janine or... or um... Yeah, he does the artist proofs. He does. Forgot it? Okay. okay. Yeah, he does. So Amazing. Yep. Good week for us. Good week for comics. Hopefully it's a good week for you. If you yep. want more of this stuff that's not in your ears but for your eyes... Go to our website, 11oClockComics.com. We also have presences on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, and Facebook. Plus, if you really want to get your, your feet wet, jump into the uh, pretty deep pool that is the Patreon page. Patreon.com forward slash 11oClockComics. See what's on offer there. Uh, if it is to your liking, we would love to have you join the club. Uh, in the meantime... Wow. This is one for the books. Say goodnight. I'm going to do a little bit of musical accompaniment. Oops. Nope. Was not the tool to bang that. Sorry. Maybe I should get a cymbal. David. Okay. Good night. Waiting for the screw up. Here it comes. Wow. <laughs> hurtful. Yeah, it is hurtful. Oh, don't say hurtful because oh, that's a word. It's so hurtful. It's totally reserved for you. You you have whenever hurtful comes out of your mouth, there's a little TM at the end of it. <laughs> nice. The only person on the planet I say is hurtful to me is you because you <laughs> hurtful to me. I try. I really try. It is. It, it's he just seems to get off on it. Wait. Nice research, bruh. <laughs> We only hurt the ones we love. Next time. Oh, goodness. Seriously. All right, everybody. We're out of here. Hope you enjoyed it. Come back next time. We don't know when it's going to be, but we may have one for you before next Friday. Yeah. I'm just saying. So uh, if not, have a great weekend. Go read some comics. Hope you all love what you read and come back here. Toot sweet for more of this. Toot sweet. Enjoy that Black Widow. That's it for that one.